Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Another history episode of the show today which means i'm here with my dude eris pina who is copy box operator and you know just a history guy like me eris what up dude what's going on my friend uh it's been a nice little couple of week break um we got a fun show ahead of us today you know um regarding what happened this past weekend the um son of a hall of famer tim zoo made his u.s debut and so today we're gonna have a fun subject talking about Fighters, kids, you know, the offspring that decided to turn pro from the very best to the very worst. I mean, this is basically this kind of this kind of shows like Mark Kriegel's wet dream, dude. Oh, my God. Just, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like, but, you know, all the all the Kriegel jokes aside, dude, it's the whole father son dynamic has been a a constant Even father daughter for that matter now yeah and father daughter for that matter too yeah i don't want to skip that out or i mean you know what i didn't even think about it either but mother son mother daughter there's a couple of those too i didn't even consider those but well, regardless yeah. um point is that whole dynamic of like a, a parent and a child their involvement in the sport of boxing especially with the child being the the fighter the more prominent fighter that seems to be you know the case a lot of the time and that's one of those tropes or stereotypes or whatever in boxing that's a lot of the time it's true you know because there are so many examples of it and so many examples of boxing families um and you know i'm not trying to ignore any boxing families or anything like that because there are so many but yeah you know that we're going to be bringing up some some families siblings but mostly just that offspring relationship today dude it's a lot to draw from yeah, absolutely. Well, well, with all that being said, what did you think of Tim Zhu's performance this past weekend? That's a good question, dude. Um, I thought that he looked pretty good. I thought that... He had a know, lot of hype behind him. That's the thing. There was a lot of hype, so he had a lot to uh, live up to for his debut, man. Because even though like his fights have been seen on TV and stuff like that, I mean, you could watch them on you know through Twitter or whatever, yeah. on streaming services. There's still like There was still a little bit of an aura of like, a question mark with it you know the mainstream audience hasn't seen him yet so right yeah and and i mean i think that at least in part uh it's it's like about half of it is that he's kasazu's kid mm -hmm. and then the other half is that in australia with all due respect to any australian listeners or anything i'm not trying to trash australian boxing in any way whatsoever but um their boxing scene isn't quite as lively as some of like the bigger portions of like, you know, bigger cities in the U S or something like that, or in the UK. And so when a big potential star comes along, they seem to really get behind them. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of expectation because of that behind Tim zoo. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, uh, <laughs> you and I, before the fight, 
uh, you and I had talked, uh, you know, on like a social media messenger and shit privately. And I had mentioned that Kostyzu, his lack of head movement was really like a killer for him and that he ate right hands in a number of fights, like really badly throughout his career. And that, yeah. And that I, and that I had hoped that Tim Zhu had picked up more head movement and a little bit more of that kind of upper body movement, bending at the waist type of thing than his dad had. And I mean, at least to this point, unfortunately, it seems like he kind of hasn't, mm. but there's not really anything wrong with that in the sense that like, he's going to be an exciting fighter. He throws a shitload of punches. He's on your ass. He makes the fight. He's a strong puncher. So I can't see him being anything but like a fun, entertaining fighter. The question, of course, is how far can he possibly go? And that's that's more open-ended right now. But it, at this point, who cares? You know, he's uh, obviously very popular in Australia. who will probably continue to be popular. It's going to be a fun fighter. Let's do it, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. He um, he struggled early on with uh, Terrell Boucher. Is it Gaucha? Gaucher? How do you pronounce it? I think it's Gaucher, but I'm... Okay. So, Either way, we know who you're talking about. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he struggled early on. You can tell he, as George Foreman used to always point out on every single fighter, he looks dry. He looks dry. No body sweat on him. And Zoom got did. broad shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> he came out stiff. He came out really dry. And um, Gaucher, you know, caught him early on, right there. Like, you know, even though Gaucher is like a lower, a lower tier fighter in that division. He's still one of those guys. I don't know if you put him in the gatekeeper status yet, but more or less, you know, he, he's one of those guys that like, if you're going to make it to the top tier, which is a very deep division consider you know, consistent of Charlo and um, Castaño and so on and so on. Um, it takes a lot to break through that bunch. And so you got to go through a guy like Terrell uh, Gaucha to, to make it there. Gaucha is a former Olympian, tough guy, good skills, good, you know, he's had a good pro career. Uh, a little underwhelming, but, you know, whenever he's really stepped up, he hasn't quite, you know, he's shown, he has a ceiling, right? He's shown where, he, where he's at in that division. Right, yeah. But the, he doesn't have a bad placement there. He's still a good fighter. He's never really been blown out. He goes, he's been the distance in his losses. And that was the exactly the type of test Zoo needed. You know, like exactly. I said earlier, yeah. there was a lot of hype around him early on before that fight. There was a lot of talk, you know, the way he was blowing out guys in Australia and the comparisons to his dad. I mean, he looks just like him. He fights very similar to him. And um, it was, and the way that Costa Zoo zipped up to become a world champion after like what was it, 14, 15, 16 pro fights, he was already in the ring um, knocking out Jake Rodriguez before that. He was in the ring, you know, beating guys up like Sammy Fuentes, Livingstone Bramble, um, Juan Laporte. The list goes on. Like he was in there with former champions and top guys early. Like Zoo was already, but he was also hot shotted because he was a superstar amateur. I was going to say, yeah, long yeah. amateur career at, at high levels. Amateur and everything, yeah. His kid, as far as I know, had a really strong amateur career as well. Not quite the level of his dad, but still well enough that when he turned pro, he has been hot shotted as quickly. He has been developed well. He has fought a slew of, like, you know, veterans and French contenders, former contenders, where may it be, and also fought, Um, I think his, uh, he did fight Jeff Horn, didn't he? Or you know, Michael Zephyr, one of those guys? Uh, I want to say Jeff Horn was the fight okay. two fights ago, I think. Okay, so there you go. Like, he's already fought, you know, former champion in Jeff Horn. And he came through that, you know, with flying colors. So there was, there was a lot of attention, especially with him being a top contender now in the ratings with a potential fight on Charlo on deck, which would be hella exciting. Or Castaño, for that matter, too, which another one would be a brutal affair. The, there was a lot going on, but like I said, he came out very stiff early on. He got dropped, you know, and 
when he got up, even though you could tell he was more surprised than stunned, he was still like stiff in there. And it looked like I was like, holy shit, this might be like an early night. And if it did, that would have been a laughing stock for everybody, including all the fighters on boxing Twitter who were commenting, hey, man, there's too much hype on him. Get him, Terrell. Like, you can't stand this type, you know. Everyone was feeling the same thing. So when he got dropped and all that, everyone was like, oh, you know, he's going to be exposed, exposed, exposed. But to Zeus' credit, he came back very strongly in that fight. Um, he composed himself. He settled down a little bit. He got his nerves under him. He cleared his head. And once he was able to do that, he got himself into a rhythm. And it worked well for him. Like you said, it's still not a lot of head movement. He got tagged with a ton of right hands. I was counting Gaucho that fight. He, Gaucho was very competitive throughout the entire fight. And, but he's like, again, he rose through it and he made adjustments to, and from there, he won a convincing decision. You can't tell me that he didn't win at least 10 of those rounds after getting dropped early on. So, yeah. I, I think that there's quite a lot of potential for him uh, with the base that he has. I would be somewhat concerned if I were in his corner in terms of, like you said, he took a lot of right hands and it, it's not like many of them were like sneaky right hands. Like the, he knew the right hand was coming, like it was coming all night. And so I would be a little bit concerned that he's not moving his head for that kind of stuff. And at this stage in the game, I'm not entirely sure how far you're going to get with teaching head movement, but um, there are things that you can do to kind of mitigate that somewhat. And I, from a fan perspective, Oh, well, you know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to watch, but yeah, he's, he's still got a lot of years. So there's a lot of years to develop. I just hope they don't push him too quickly because at this moment, from what he's showing on Saturday, he could beat a lot of guys in the vision. I'm not sure if he's ready for a Charlo yet. It would be fun to watch, but I think Charlo with the way, um, you know, he catches his punches, the way he throws power punches, the way he times people and stuff like that. It's, you know, recipe for disaster. Yeah, it would it would possibly be real bad, but I think that he could get there. He could potentially get there in a few fights. Oh, absolutely. Give him some time. Yeah, you know he matches up well with those guys. He matches up well with Lubin. Um, I'd love to see him in with that elastic freak Fundora. Um, (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, well, speaking of the whole kind of father son dynamic, getting back to this historical angle here, right? what is or you know offspring sorry not father son but the the offspring dynamic what what's kind of a a good example or an example you wanted to bring up first one you got to go with the dad who had i guess he had one fame he had one son that stood out from the pack but he had all of his kids more or less box so you got to talk about the fighting frasers because that's just a whole story in itself man you can actually have a podcast on joe frazier and his kids and what he kind of Joel Frazier's gym and how he molded it and everything else it's it, there's a lot to unpack here yeah dude it's it's an entire story um I mean rolling from Joe Frazier's story whose family you know immigrated from the south you know to Philadelphia uh you know that in itself is a fairly well-known story because several books written about it and whatnot but then also it's kind of like figures right into the fighting history of Philadelphia in the sixties and seventies, and I guess into the eighties too, a little bit um, because of Joe Frazier's not only involvement as a pro, but his involvement in Philadelphia boxing and whatnot. And then of course, how his particularly Marvis Frazier's, uh, you know, path intersected with 
future heavyweight champion Mike Tyson. I mean, like this is the entire thing, like involves a whole lot of names here. You know what I mean? It's pretty crazy. It is, you know, so Joe had kid, um, like you mentioned, Marvis. There was Joe Frazier Jr., who I think was Hector Frazier. And am I correct? And Rod, like, I'm not even looking at anything. Rodney Frazier, I think, was another one. I think so, yeah. Or so, I think I want to say Rodney was like a nephew because he oh, had, okay. A, okay. He had a few. I know he did have, he did have like nephews and stuff fighting. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I, I believe Rodney was a nephew. I'd, I, but I'd have to look too. I, I'm not looking. But I know that he had some nephews. Like Hector Frazier, I think. Because I know it was either... I want to say Hector and Joe Frazier Jr. might have been the same. Like, I don't think Hector was his his full name, but was his real name. But, um, you know, and then, like, Marvis. But So Frazier had his gym, like you mentioned. He obviously started opening... He opened his own gym in North Philadelphia in the 70s. And by the mid to late 70s up in the early 80s the place was booming like there was very you know packed lots of top fighters trained out of that gym or if they didn't train they passed through for sparring or whatever it may be but that was one of the mainstays of philadelphia besides his kids training there you had guys like james Schuler who would pass through who was a right. tremendous middleweight who died tragically young um, that was the first that was the first fighter along with marvis that joe signed with under his management and gym yeah so you had james Schuler. You had um, a young Burt Cooper before he fell apart into drugs. Um, you know, the list goes on. I think, you know, Saad Muhammad, I'm sure, passed through there, even though he wasn't a part of that gym. Like, I'm sure he worked out in there. Um, you know, the list goes on. The Spinks brothers, Michael Spinks, was definitely working out in there. So I had to look just to make sure, and you were correct. Joe Frazier Jr., a.k.a. Hector Frazier. Okay, I knew it. See, I just wanted to make sure I was right on that. His <laughs> sister, Jackie Frazier, lied. Yeah. And then Rodney Frazier, which indeed was his nephew. So those were the fighting Frazier's. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I got them. <laughs> um, so between so, us, between us, we'll get it. We'll. we'll yeah, get we always put everything. We put everything together. Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I knew I had a, I had a so feeling we are that trustworthy like, after Frazier all. Junior was Hector Frazier. Yeah. So okay, and I believe he was the one, or one of them fought Vinny Paz and got knocked out. I want to say that was Joe Frazier Junior. But. So to go back, that was the thing. Joe had his gym in Philadelphia that he was training out of, and he had good trainers there too. George Benton was training out of there, a legendary trainer, and, you know, others. Like, it was a very booming gym. Joe had a lot of business going through here, you know, and as well as his career that he was still kind of trying to cling on to in the late 70s. And, you know, things were good. But he was pushing his kids out there to be fighters, and they obviously took to it considering their backgrounds. So the one they want to talk about, you know, the, the mainstay was Marvis, like you, the one you just mentioned earlier. Marvis Frazier um, <clears throat> was a tremendous amateur. He came of the same era of the really doomed and ill-fated class of 1980, where all the members, you know, for various reasons, fell into different situations, the plane crash, so on and so forth. But that was the, that was the era he was from. And early on, when it came um, to the heavyweight division, which I think, yeah, in the heavyweight division of amateur boxing, Frazier was the gold standard. And that's really saying something considering how deep the amateur or U.S. amateur boxing scene was in the mid to late 70s up until the early 80s. Because we're coming off of the 1976 Olympics. Ali was still heavyweight champion. Boxing's popularity has an all-time high. Everybody's fighting at that point. Everybody's turning the boxing. There was a lot of, lot of, lot of good fighters around that point. All right. You know, and during that era when Marvis Frazier was still an amateur, you had other guys who would be going on who went on to become heavyweight champions or top contenders. You know, you had Tony Tubbs, you had Greg Page, um, 
James Broad. Uh, the list goes on and on of different, you know, different heavy. Tony Tucker was around that time. Like, even though I don't think he was a heavyweight, light heavyweight, you know, like the list goes on and on of like all the top guys around there. And for Marvis Frazier back then to be the top amateur of his division and just the top dog and more or less the guy that was favored to become um, the a favored to represent the class of, you know, for 1980 at the Olympics is saying something. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think that if you, we've talked about this before, but just to kind of like briefly go through the timeline between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, they obviously helped really Muhammad Ali in particular, but Joe Frazier was obviously part of the equation helped propel the popularity of boxing in the late sixties and early seventies. They helped propel it upward. And then the 1976 Olympics and that team really ignited like reignited interest in boxing in the late 1970s and into the 1980s. And so Marvis Frazier was a part of that era of that kind of, you know, uh, writing that interest. There were a lot of things happening too. We talked about, we did an entire show about Don King's U S tournament, which fucked a whole bunch of shit up. And, you know, like really soured a lot of the, the perspective on it, but nonetheless, killed us boxing. He damn near, he came pretty close. Like it was almost as if he was trying to, but I mean, yeah, nonetheless, the sport persevered into the eighties, still kind of riding that wave. And that's where Marvis Frazier was. And you said he was a really good amateur and stylistically too. This is something that a lot of people don't really mention or maybe don't mention enough uh, is that Marvis Frazier as an amateur was a little bit different than the pro that we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because his most famous fight or his probably two most famous fights. Number one is the absolute crushing loss to Mike Tyson in like 30 seconds or whatever it is. And number two is the ass kicking he took from Larry Holmes. And so, I mean, like, between those two they're embarrassing enough and lasting enough unfortunately that that's what he's mostly remembered for as an amateur he's you know apparently and (laughs) from what you can see even in reports he fought way different you know he was much more of a boxer and far more uh successful fighting that way exactly that's who he learned from Mm -hmm. and then he signed with his dad along with uh james shuler and I mean, according to legend and probably pretty much just according to what you can see with your own eyes, you can see Marvis Frazier trying to fight like Joe Frazier. Because and his dad made him to do it. Be at the behest of his father. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's it's another example of the kind of the toxicity yes. in that that offspring relationship and boxing that not, not always, but almost always comes along, you know? And that's the main one, you know, because think of it like this, buddy, the Pat. Um, Frazier, like you just mentioned, was a classic boxer. And you have to, and look how he was built, Marvin Frazier. He wasn't built like his dad. Joe Frazier was a short heavyweight, but it was built like a redwood tree, stocky, you know, thick legs, hips, the whole barrel chested, short arms, but just thick. Like he was built for his style. He was never going to be a fancy boxer. Marvin Frazier was nothing like that. He was tall, he was lean, he had long arms. He was built to be a stylist. He was built to be a boxer, not a come in there, seek and destroy slugger, peekaboo style like Joe Frazier, you know, bobbing and weaving like that. That's the complete opposite of anything he should have done. 
and to completely take what he had learned from George Benton, who was one of the greatest traders of all time. And Benton molded him into his own little project. He made him into a heavyweight version of himself, like, you know, cruiserweight heavyweight version of himself. And Frazier, by all accounts, you know, it's interesting that a lot of his amateur fights are actually kind of hard to find, it seems, considering how much is out there and how often they were televised. I know he was, I'm sure he was televised very often, but everything I've seen on YouTube when they show, you know, different amateur tournaments, I haven't seen any of his, any of his footage yet. But that as an aside, like you said, when you read everything that you've seen about him and all that, he was a classic stylist who was a beautiful boxer and was the top of his class. Almost on that plane crash, almost um, went to, went to, um, where was it? Excuse me, Poland. Poland, yeah. He almost went to Poland on that plane, on the ill-fated plane crash that took out the U.S. team in 1980. <laughs> but Joe Frazier had a premonition the night before he said, or, you know, earlier that week saying that he knew something bad was going to happen and wouldn't let Marcus go, so he avoided that. But like you said, once Joe started getting more involved with his career, as Marvis started getting more prominence, and he was about to turn pro, that's when he took over his career. And another thing that like hindered Marvis also was that he suffered an injury in his last amateur fight before he turned pro. The aforementioned James Broad, who I mentioned, you know, as a part of like the deep class of that era. Broad Yes, a giant of a heavyweight, by the way. He got a lot bigger. and I mean, another tragic figure, but a very talented fighter in his own right when he was in his prime before his vices took over. And he actually knocked Frazier out in the first round when they fought as amateurs. And when he did it, he, like, I think he, um, he gave, he, like, pinched Marvis Frazier's nerves or something like that, too. Like, he gave him some kind of spinal injury that kind of, like, it was a bad knockout. Like, you know, he, he, stumped, he stumped him pretty good. And when he did that, Marvis turned pro, but he already had an injury that they felt they needed to accelerate him a little bit. Kind of like what they did with David Reed because of his eye. And, but what made it so bad was because Frazier completely took away everything that he had done before that. Like all the boxing, everything stripped that away. And then he looked like a clone of himself. And when people would question Frazier and ask him certain things or, you know, interview him about it, he would always make the comments, oh, you know, you can do the boxing stuff, but when it comes to the pros, you got to sit down and settle on your punches, really dig in there, blah, blah, blah. Basically saying that he doesn't want him to look like George Benton. He wants him to look like himself. And for a while, the charade worked, I guess, even though he wasn't that impressive in his fight, in his performances up to that point. Because you can just tell he's fighting heavyweights that are a lot bigger than him. And he's fighting this, he's fighting a clone of it, like a clone like his dad. And he's a lot smaller waist to just, he's not big like that. He's not strong enough to be able to pull something like that. And he's getting away with these wins because he's athletic and he's young and he's talented enough. But at the same time, he's like, you don't, well, you know. And that's another thing, dude, is that I don't know, I don't know Mar Marvis Frazier and I don't know his, I don't know his fucking anatomy or anything like that. But I also question whether or not he necessarily needed to be a heavyweight. Oh, and or whether or not he was pushed he was clearly smaller than everybody he fought mostly yeah he seemed like he could have like gone down to light heavyweight or something like that and that he was probably pushed to heavyweight because his dad was a heavyweight champion would be my guess but i you know i don't even know that marvis frazier would out and out say that i honestly like i honestly don't know so he got pushed to larry holmes instead yeah dude just <laughs> yeah man larry holmes just uh gave him the old you know just clowned him. It was bad. And that was Frazier's fault, too, because if you watch it, he tries clowning Holmes, which is a colossally stupid move. But he made miss, you know, it was almost like, you know, when Mike Quarry was fighting Bob Foster 
and he made Foster miss with like two or three punches. So he decided to Ali shuffle him and start acting stupid. And that's when Foster, you know, hit him with a left hook and almost killed him. Yeah. And, yeah. Frazier so, made Holmes miss with a couple of punches, started feeling himself, started doing the whole dump, you know, sticking his chin out, sticking his chin out. Holmes is just sitting there like this kid is going to die, which he did. So he measures him, hits him with the right hand. Holmes goes skinning across the ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like immediately, like, oh, what did I do? And then Holmes gets up and as he's yelling at, I think it was Mills, Rain, Mills Lane, I think was the ref. <laughs> Every yeah. time he hits him with the right hand, stop the fight. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just stop doing the, the old measure with the left. Like, you know, <laughs> bang, bang, him like bang. he's a child. Almost like what a parent would take the belt. You know how that is, Pat, when you got hit with a belt as a kid? It's literally what it is. You're measuring him and just. Yeah, it was brutal, dude. Like, just it, not even so much damaging as it is embarrassing, yeah. which is exactly like as it gets stopped. Marvis is just like, you know, Joe comes over. Marvis is just like, holy shit, like bewildered more and, and embarrassed than hurt, it looks like. But him, yeah. Brutal, dude. Yeah, that's that's I think a really good example um, for yeah for a whole number of reasons, and and one one more thing to say to, to mention this, it, it should be mentioned that Fra like we said, Fraser had a very busy gym. He had a lot of guys and all that. Isn't it interesting that the, he never developed a world champion? The closest he had was like an NABF champion with Burt Cooper, and uh, was he still with Shula by the time Shula fought Hearns, or did Shula move on by that? I'm not even sure, but um, I think Schuler was still with him, but I'm not positive. And I think he was actually involved with um with Von Bean, that heavyweight from the '90s to the. <laughs> but I mean, anyways, like his own kids, Marvis never really, besides having a few high-profile fights, never amounted to you know to the potential he had and his other kids and nephews and such. Same. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really shock me. Um, a, n a number of these examples are going to be a parent who went on to also be a trainer or a parent who was a trainer or something like that. And that doesn't really shock me because especially with Joe Frazier, he seemed like a pretty stubborn guy. And yeah, totally. if, and if he was the kind of trainer that really tried to only teach one style which some trainers do, you know, some trainers aren't like that and are more of the, well, I'll take what you got and we'll work with it type of, you know, style. And others are, no, I'm going to teach a cross arm defense. You know, I'm going to teach you or whatever it is, you know, like Customato tended to teach that uh, very similar style, you know, to all of his fighters, etc. And if Joe Frazier was that way, that wouldn't surprise me whatsoever because that is not the kind of style that's very successful overall for most fighters like for overall for most fighters you're better off learning how to throw punches in a very orthodox textbook manner defensively sound you know etc like it, you're far more likely to be successful doing that than you are boring in overwhelming somebody and you know moving your head like inside, but also kind of acknowledging that you're going to be taking a lot of punches due mm -hmm. to your style. That's not the kind of thing a lot of fighters can do. You know, it takes balls. It takes fucking durability and endurance and it takes power because you can't do that shit with no power. So, I mean, you know, that doesn't really surprise me that much that he had fighters that went pretty far, but just not, not to a world championship. Yeah. It's a very complex case. There's, um, 
there's a very good book out on Frazier, his, his biography. Um, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head at the moment, but it pretty it goes into pretty good detail. Have, but... You know what I'm talking about? The I... recent one that came out in the past couple of years. Uh, the uh, Mark Cram Jr. one? Yeah, that's it. Mark Cram yeah. Jr. Yes. Yeah. But he, he goes into pretty good detail talking about Frazier and how he managed his children and other fighters from that era and what was going on. So it's worth checking out. Yeah, Mark Cram was a fantastic writer for Sports Illustrated and wrote a couple other places, but primarily Sports Illustrated. Really, really good writer. One of my favorite to read. Mark Cram Jr. was a good book. Uh, yeah, I would recommend it for anybody looking to kind of learn more about Fraser for sure. But <clears throat> what else do you got, my friend? All right, I, I got a pretty good one that I wanted to talk about just because I guess I read a lot about it. And so <laughs> got all that works gotta go to go to. You gotta go talk about what you read, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, in so back in the day, right back in the 1940s, there was a lightweight named Lenny Mancini, Lenny Boom Boom Mancini. You know, uh, obviously, you know where this is going. There's no other way where it's going, right? But, you know, Lenny Mancini uh, was a very good fighter, a guy who didn't have a ton of power, but was a guy who was a very popular fighter because he was a good TV type of fighter, a fighter that was very entertaining, uh, a fighter that threw a lot of punches and wanted to make the fight. And in any case, he wound up, uh, losing a split decision to Sammy Angot in a non-title fight. And then, you know, won, I think, a couple more fights and then was going to get a title shot against Sammy Angot. And literally, like, I think it was either a week or two weeks, I can't remember what he said, uh, that he wound up being drafted, that he wound up being drafted for World War II and that he had asked the, he had asked the draft board for an extension said, can I at least get a, a week or two extension or something like that so that I can do this fight? I'll even donate all of my purse to an army fund or something like that. And they said, no, we want, we don't want the money. We want you. And so he wound up being, he wound up getting sent off to world war two. And in any case, yeah. Uh, during that time, he got injured really badly by a mortar shell. And then that injury wound up not taking him out of boxing entirely, but he just wasn't the same after that. But he was trained by Ray Arcel, actually. So he was a, a world-ranked, you know, fighter. He wasn't just some bum or something like that. But he had a, an entire backstory, and uh, that that kind of made for good news fodder when Ray Mancini came along. And Ray Mancini, of course, uh, as uh, an amateur, I guess he was discouraged from from fighting by his dad. His dad didn't really want him to fight, but that, you know, he said, well, I guess if you choose it, you're going to do it. And so Ray Mancini went on to, to fight and, you know, became an extremely exciting fighter himself. And that dynamic, that father-son dynamic between them, again, that's, I guess, like I said, Mark Kriegel's wet dream of the show. He wrote a book about this. He wrote this, a book about Mancini. Yeah, this exact <laughs> topic. But it no, was a good book too. Yeah, no, it it is, and it is does break down and kind of touch on a lot of the uh, a lot of the inner workings of that father son relationship because they did have kind of a I don't want to say a, a weird relationship, but just kind of a a complex relationship from a, an emotional standpoint 
And I mean, it's something that I think is really interesting for a whole number of reasons. Cause you could see that like, uh, from the time he's like super young, Ray Mancini is basically devoted to his father. Like, so hold it, up. What was, when I, I believe the backstory was, correct me if I'm wrong, how he discovered that his dad was a fighter. Was it that he found books on it or he, 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 what was the, what was that he discovered? How did he discover No. That? uh his dad had a big photo his 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 parents his family had a big photo like a you know like a two foot tall photo okay of, of his dad you know posing yeah, yeah, yeah. uh back when he was a contender and i don't it was like framed or something in their living room and so from the time he was really little uh, they would say, like Ray Mancini said, that other kids wanted to be other things like firefighter or whatever, and that he always wanted to be a boxer. And they, he always told people he wanted to be a boxer, but that his dad kind of discouraged him and that uh, he had said, you know, I, that I don't want you to be a boxer because it's it's hard. It's rough. It's cold. You know, like it's it's not a nice world and you don't want to go into that world. But then eventually uh, or, and actually during his kind of sports playing years, Ray Mancini, I guess, was really good at baseball. And, you know, he played basketball, baseball, football, never really did boxing. But then when he was in his later teenage years, figured, you know, I want to box because his older brother uh, was Lenny Jr., yes. who, was, who was actually a really good amateur. And he used to go to the gym with his older brother, Lenny Jr. And I guess one day he had said to the trainer, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I guess something like Lenny Jr. wasn't doing something right or wasn't doing something the way the trainer wanted or something like that. And Ray said to the trainer, you know, I'm going to be the best fighter you guys ever seen. And of course, this is another kind of backdrop of this is Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown, Ohio was a, I believe, a mining town, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure in any case, it was an industrial town and, uh, the the town lost just an absolute shitload of jobs in the 1970s uh which like crippled the town economically and it yeah, lies definitely a working class if they're going to describe yeah. that for america that's well and it's along what is described as the rust belt yeah where which is a bunch of industrial towns that have basically just gone to shit or at one point got went to shit because the whatever industry, you know, that propped them up shut down or went bad or sour or whatever, you know, coal mining and stuff like that. Well, there's no more coal to mine or that's not the energy, blah, blah, blah. So point being, that's another backdrop here is that this is an extremely working class town uh, where you know, that's, that's one of the, the ethics, you know, the, that work ethic or that kind of like hardworking, you know, slumming it type of thing is, is important to the story here. So anyway, um, yeah, um that, yeah. not to, to cut, but, um, also too, I do remember, I, something I remember from the book, Raymond Senior wrote a poem about his dad. Well, and, and what he, I was, oh, what you I was about to well, and what I was going to say earlier was that like, they're, his, Ray Mancini's devotion to his father was like bordering on obsession. That's like, what I, yeah. Yep. Cause I mean, at some point when he got into boxing, he put his picture in the corner of, of Lenny Mancini's picture in the living room and like, you know, snuck it into the corner or whatever. 
anyway, yeah, he used to write poetry and he used to talk to interviewers and stuff like that. Why are you fighting? What are you doing? It's all for my dad. I want to win a championship for my dad because my dad, blah, 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 because my dad, this, my dad's had a really tough life. He deserves this, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, there were even times when it seemed like his dad was like, you know, he's got to, he's got to fight for himself. You know, he's got to stop, but he never stopped. He still talks about his dad, you know? So it's, it's well, oh, yeah, absolutely. He's very devoted, man. Very nice guy too. Yeah. And, and nothing wrong. He seems like a really good guy, nothing wrong with being devoted to your parents or whatever, but I'm just saying that it, totally, the, totally. the motivations between, you know, behind him getting into the ring and also like the, the style that he fought in too. It's, it's crazy because, you know, I'll shut the fuck up in a second and let you, let you jump in here, but a, a really prominent piece in. Uh, so first of all, Lenny Jr. actually wound up dying on Valentine's day, 1981 from a shooting that was deemed accidental when supposedly he was showing his girlfriend at the time, how to shoot a gun and his girlfriend shot him and killed him. So that was another kind of heartache and hardship that the Mancini family wound up having to go through. But then in 1982, the following year, that was when Ray Mancini versus Kim Duke happened. And so obviously, or Duke Kim, as most people, I guess, would remember it. And point being, Kim wound up passing away from injuries sustained in the fight. And the narrative since then has been like, well, Ray Mancini, he was afraid after that. He lost his killer instinct. And I think that's the kind of common thing that people say when a fighter accidentally kills another fighter in the ring. And this is another, yet another example where that wasn't actually the case whatsoever. And that's a nice kind of poetic way to say it, but it's not the case because Ray Mancini was actually uh, hounded before that in the late seventies and the early eighties about lacking killer instinct, if you can believe it, because there were a few outings that he had where people were like, wow, he's not closing the show real well. I mean, again, Ray Mancini is an incredible TV fighter who was like nonstop action for the most part. So that's pretty crazy that it was even getting criticized in that way. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I figured that was a really good example because I did a lot of reading on them, as you can probably tell. I mean, it's a great one, man. Mancini was one of the biggest stars of the 80s in boxing. He, he was a matinee owl. He was a good-looking guy. Like you mentioned, his backstory with his dad, America ate that up. And when he was coming up in the ranks, he was featured prominently on television. By the time he challenged Alexis Arguello, the great Alexis Arguello, for the lightweight championship in 1981, uh, that, that, was, that was like a made-for-TV movie right there, all right? You know, you, we already know Mancini's backstory, his devotion to his dad. He wants to lend the lightweight championship for his father. Now it's his, now it's his chance. Like, he's undefeated. He's going to fight for the lightweight championship. Alexis Arguello is a great fighter, a great, great fighter. And not only that, he's just a great human being, humble, and just a genuine, really good person. And they produced an incredible fight. You know, I mean, everybody that listens to the show obviously has probably watched it. But if you've never seen it, please go back and watch it, man. Because Mancini put on the fight of his life. He really did. Like, he went in there and he tried. And he had a lot of success early on. Arguello didn't come through that skate. It was a battle. But Arguello being the great champion that he is, eventually, you know, as other champions usually do, saw, excuse me, saw his way through, started breaking through slowly but surely. And Mancini started breaking down himself. And by the time the 14th round hit or and now Grail finally finished him, you know, that was the exclamation point, but it was a great, great, great fight. And, and it was the ending too, after the ending, what was the, as the post-fight interview, 
Mancini's sitting, you know, standing there with your dad, with his dad, and he's kind of, you know, being consoled or whatever. And Arguello comes over with these beautiful words. He was like, you know, I love your father. I love your father. Like, I love my father. Anything I can do, you know, I'd love to help you, yada, yada, yada. And it, I'm sure people were crying at home, well, at least the wives of the husbands that were watching and drinking their past blue ribbon and smoking some cigarettes. And <laughs> And like it was, oh, it was this is fucking beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> this is fucking beautiful. And so like it was, I mean, it was a, it was a, an incredible moment. And like that was the beauty of '80s boxing back then that you can catch shit like that, you know. And um, when uh, when Mancini was finally able to win the title the following year against Toro Frias, and a very very good fight too, man. That was an incredible one round blowout. Uh, one excuse me, not a blowout. One round war where Mancini was hurt early on, he was cut, he was getting beat up, and then he came back and blasted Frias in the same round. Like, you know, you just had yourself a made gold for television fighter that was going to get star ratings no matter who he fought. Yeah, dude, and actually Arguello's victory over Ray Mancini, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's like his crowning achievement or anything like that, but it was it was an incredible fight. And that was probably one of the underrated things about Alexis Arguello is we could obviously talk about Ray Mancini as a great TV fighter, but Alexis Arguello was probably underrated in that department too. Cause I mean, he, there were a, a number of fights where he was getting beaten up early, knocked down early, or hurt early, whatever. And he wound up having to come back or take some shots in order to, mm-hmm. he was an incredible technician, but he was also a really good TV fighter. And one of those fighters that overcame adversity more than once. Very much so. But I would say that him showing the compassion that he did after that fight really propelled him popularity wise too, because, you know, as often as these guys were featured on television, um, Arguello was featured too, but like, this was like a very high profile fight that more people were probably tuning into as, as opposed to his other, you know, title defenses back in the day. So for America, a lot of people were seeing him for the first time. And when they see like, Oh my God, this guy's the most perfect human, whatever. It definitely gained a lot of popularity and notoriety for him because Everybody always described him as like the gentleman of the prize ring. You know what I mean? The noble yeah. fighter and all that. And that really personified. That was him. That was him. How he was, how he was acting. There was nothing fake about how he was, you know, showing his gratitude and showing how much he loved, you know, how much love he was showing to Mancini and his dad. That and was that's all- what everybody, you, everybody always says, uh, says about meeting him is that he would take the time to speak with like everybody. Yeah. So like, all right, not to veer off too quick, but like my dad, for instance, him being a photographer, he covered the Civil War. He covered the, the revolution in Nicaragua during the 80s between um, the Sandinistas and the Contras. And he has some crazy stories from that shit. Like I was, I was, I don't know, probably two and a half, three years old. So I don't remember any of it, but my mom definitely did. And she was freaked out because she didn't think my dad was going to come back from it. But anyways, you know, he obviously survived, yada, yada, yada. He met Arguello because he loved Arguello. And and he got to talk to him about it and stuff like that. And Arguello was like really, really in- intrigued by it and sat down with him and was like really, you know, and showed his compassion and told him like appreciative. It was like, oh, thank you so much for doing that and all this stuff and bringing supplies. And like, you know, you really appreciate it. He touched my dad doing that. It was cool. Well, and, and yeah, and just to kind of like explain that just a tiny bit, Alexis Arguello got very much involved in yes. the local politics of uh, Managua, Nicaragua. So yeah. that's why he figures into that you know, the, his country's revolution so prominently. Mm-hmm. So that was that. Cool. So what's a, what's another kind of offspring duo? Let's not talk about the band. Cause I hate them. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you one song, bro. Um, well, this one's more modern as well, but again, 
there's a lot of story to this and a lot of backstory, but I'd like, I wanted to bring up Corey Spinks because, I mean, the story is there with him and his dad and stuff like that, but I'm not sure if everybody knows the whole story about his whole family between, you know, his other siblings too, including one that, um, that passed away at an early age. So yeah, Corey Spinks. Yeah. There's, uh, obviously the, the three of them. Well, I would say, would you say that they're probably the most accomplished boxing family? The Spinks? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you put them all together, absolutely. Uh, Michael Spinks, who's in the hall of fame, undisputed light heavyweight champion. Two two Olympic gold medalists. Two Olympic gold medalists from the 76 team. Leon Spinks beat Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight title. Regardless of how the rest of his career went on, he still beat Ali for the championship. Yeah, he's an Olympic gold medalist who beat Olympic Muhammad Ali medalist. like in what his what was his like his eighth, eighth, eighth fight? Yeah. yeah. And then and then <laughs> you have Corey Spinks, who became undisputed welterweight champion. Right. Like undisputed, undisputed. Moved up, became junior middleweight champion, arguably beat Jermaine Taylor. You know, so yeah, I would say definitely they're the most accomplished family. And considering their background and where they came from, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, because there's like some other families who have oh, like, yeah, two, I'm two sure members who are really accomplished, but none of them, I don't think, have like three like Especially that. Especially like an offspring, too, really coming yeah. up like that, you know? But Yeah, that's pretty wild. Corey Spinks. Um, the Shade Brothers, though. I'm just kidding. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story for another time, right? Yeah. Bro? <laughs> but, you know, with, with Corey Spinks, um, he was a guy that came up really tough. Really, really tough. You know, he, as much as I love Leon Spinks, you do, you know, he seems like a lovable dude. He wasn't really there in, in their kids' Yeah, he life. was not a very good dad, he, unfortunately. Not, not at all. You know, Leon had a lot of things going on in the 80s. and so, Well, after he became heavyweight champion. Leon just kind of went on a whirlwind that, you know, took him throughout his entire career. I don't know if he ever really stopped until after he was retired and finally was able to settle down a little bit when, you know, he had a lot of issues and other difficulties. But Leon always had a good heart. You can't take that wrong. But to say he was a good dad early on would definitely not be the case because he wasn't there for his kids, you know, early on. Well, and, yeah, Michael, Michael and Leon grew up in the, what was it, the pruitt Igo. Yes. I want to say, yeah, St. Louis, yeah. which is a pro- housing project, which is notoriously bad project. Yeah, which St. Yeah. Louis itself is underrated in the yeah. holy shit cities, you know, on the holy shit list. So, so, I mean. With Leon growing up, Michael and Leon, you know, they're brothers, but like Michael's a little bit younger. And I believe their sister too. Like Leon was the oldest sibling. And he had, he had to be the one that had to take the brunt of the beatings because of that. You know, the other ones are too young. They weren't going out. So Leon got beat up. He got picked on other stuff. But also he knew he had to fight. And when he became a boxer and he went back to the neighborhood, he started beating everyone else's ass. And then people started, people left him alone. And then he realized he was good at it. Michael soon joined him, who was more meeker and quieter. But, you know, you follow in your brother's footsteps and you have to learn how to defend yourself. So before you know it, the Sphinx brothers are on a rampage. They're one of the top you know both of them are top amateurs in the country when we mentioned you're fighting hundreds and hundreds of amateur fights back then bro you're fighting every week every weekend the u.s amateur system was wild back then and these guys were the top of their class both of them they both end up becoming olympic gold medalists and move on so of course Spinks being the wild dude that is he has he has kids you know i mean he has different and 
they grew up without their dad. They grew up, real, you know, struggling. If you look at the accounts and different stories that are written, they, all of them would say the same thing. They grew up in poverty. You know, they grew up in the projects. They're like, yeah, my dad was every champion, but what we have to show for it. Leon would see them time to time and, you know, visit them, whatever, but, or they would go visit him, but, you know, it was never like an extended visit or if it was, nothing really ended really well. But so Corey came up really, really tough. He did. And he had, um, he has a couple of older brothers. One of them had promise as well as a boxer in the late eighties, early nineties. And that was uh, Leon Spinks Jr. Also, AKA Leon Calvin, if you want to take the, you know, the mother's last name. And he was a very promising boxer back in the early day. Um, God, who, who wasn't that wrote that I first read about him from the, from the article Berger, Berger on boxing, Phil Berger. You know that the, the mm-hmm. punchlines. So he he wrote an article all about Leon Calvin and his whole life growing up. You know, being Leon Spinks' son, not seeing his dad, trying to you know navigate the the ways of a pro, but except living in St. Louis in the hood and you know being a young guy and all that. It, it was crazy. But long story short, Leon Calvin was a very promising boxer in the late '80s, early '90s. Leon Spinks' his oldest child, and turned pro was two and zero but he still was involved in a nightlife and subsequently got murdered um, and some street issue or whatever it was. And um, so that was the start of it. His other two kids, um, I want to say Daryl Spinks was a light heavyweight or so. Mm-hmm. And then Corey Spinks, you know, went on to become pros. Daryl, yeah, I think he fought for a regional title here and there. I actually remember, I think watching him on, I don't know, I want to say Fox, Fox sports or something at one point, but, he didn't really pan out too much. Corey was the one that had the most potential. And the thing with Corey, though, was that he didn't have much of a punch. He was a slickster. He was a good amateur. He had a good amateur background, but you really didn't know how far he could become as a pro because, like I said, you know, his punch was non-existent, but he was a really, really slick boxer. And also, even though Leon had such a diminished name at that point, still being the son of a former heavyweight champion carried some kind of um, some kind of weight, right? So... I remember in the early 2000s, he was gaming a little bit of prominence. What do you think? Yeah, um, and there's actually, he just fought last year. There's Leon Spinks III, too. Oh, that's right. That's Daryl, that's that's um, Leon Calvin's kid, right? Who just fought, yeah, he fought like last year, too. Unfortunately, his record's not super good, but just uh, in any case. But that's uh, Leon Spinks Jr., the one that got murdered. Mm-hmm. That's, that's his kid. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I don't, I do remember there was another Spinks coming up around that time, but like, I don't remember paying super close attention. Obviously I remember paying close attention to Corey. Mm-hmm. The, like, I would say the first time I ever really, I mean, I knew of him and I had, and I remember seeing his name, but I hadn't really seen much of him until the Michele Picarillo fight. The yes. first, the yeah. first one because there was such a, a stink made about how bad a decision it was, bro. We were just talking about how these Italian fighters be fucking getting, you know, you know of- all in the late, it was so interesting because in the late nine, in the, in the nineties and the early two thousands, you'd hear all about these God awful bullshit decisions that were happening in Germany and other parts of Europe where Americans were getting absolutely screwed, but we had no access to watch it back then. 
unless you were tape trading or something, you know? Right, yeah. So you'd have to go by the accounts of Brian Dugan from Ring Magazine and other correspondents from back then. Yeah, so you'd be like, damn, I guess Sven Anke is shitty, but I wouldn't know, but I guess, <laughs> yeah. I guess he sucks. I don't know. And then, you know, five, six years later when you team came around, wow, he really was shitty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, fuck, I, I'm not voting for that guy. No, yeah, fuck yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, and that was kind of like uh, similarly, but I, re I remember hearing about that fight and then reading about it and then finally seeing it eventually but but that was one of the first times i was like oh okay obviously he's rising to more prominence than you know i realized and then obviously in the early 2000s he really broke out um but yeah i don't i don't really remember personally the other Sphinx kids but yeah obviously a, a big boxing yeah, family the leon calvin what makes it sad he was a promising pro uh he actually signed a contract with cedric back in like oh i did yeah i was gonna know that yeah. so he had signed a contract with cedric kushner back in like 1990 and cedric was a top player back then so that was the potentially show but like i said he was unfortunately murdered Corey, um it, it no one really was sure how how far like he ended up being piccarillo uh pick up hey, piccarillo piccolo whatever in a rematch uh, for the IBF title, but when he did fight Ricardo Mayorga, um, I remember the consensus was that was just kind of that was kind of like the, the the coronation for Mayorga, right? He had he had already beaten Vernon Forrest twice, who is basically considered the best fighter in the division, if not one of the best in the world. And then for him to beat him twice, like Corey Spinks was almost like an afterthought, and that was on one that one of those massive Don King pay per views that he uh, that was distributed by HBO. Yep, there was like a, I can't remember who else was on it, but I want to say Hopkins was on it. Ruiz um, Rockman, I think, might have been. Yeah, on it. yep, that was that same one. Yeah. Oh man, dude, that fight was so bad. Like, I mean, I, I, I never really liked Ricardo Mayorga. Like now, I appreciate his personality and what he brought, like in terms of excitement. But I just never really liked him. I kind of thought that he was just a dick. Like he just kind of, I mean, there's a difference between good trash talk and just being a fucking asshole and like trying to rile up your opponent by like being like mean spirited and malicious. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what he came off as. But regardless, point is, uh, it was like, I, I didn't want to root for him or anything like that. And I felt like in the spots where Corey Spinks was actually putting it together, like he obviously had more skill and was doing okay. But then it was like anytime Mayorga even like touched him, he was like flailing to the canvas. And I just remember being like, all right, dude, now we're starting to get into territory where like, I don't care who wins. Like, I just want this to be over with. And I don't think I've rewatched it since. I remember watching it at the time being like, this is so bad. I saw it. When was that? Oh, three? Roughly. Um, something like that. I think like it was in the wintertime. So I'm going to say oh, three. It was bad. But uh, yeah, I have not watched it since that fight. But stink stinks <laughs> spinks that's what um, they used to call him at the time spinks um did score an upset and no one i from what i remember no one really expected that to happen that was a pretty significant upset that spinks did like he's it was an exciting fight like you said man considering that one at rockman ruiz and others were on that card that was kind of dismal but it was still fascinating to see that Mayorga was frustrated as hell couldn't do anything about it and spinks won a rightful decision and it felt right too because Mayorga, I think, before the fight said that he was going to spend, send Spinks 
with his dead mother who had recently passed away or something really really like yeah that's what i'm so that bad. kind of stuff is what i mean is like that's the kind of like mean-spirited like trash that was really talk. awful not... so for spinks to kind of slap him around instead was like pretty cool to see yeah and again like for a guy who had little to no power like he did and he didn't have a fan-friendly style that would really equate to like being popular with judges he had a very successful career against a lot of top level guys man he wasn't easy to fight and he had various line skills and he beat some good guys on, on you know along the way too so yeah and pound for pound his ring walks were like absolutely oh man they were awesome bro you can't like his, <laughs> him dancing um for instance i watched the judah fight, well at least the beginning of the first judah fight which wasn't a bad fight and that was actually a pretty like pretty entertaining fight in my opinion yeah i remember that it was um and i think he came out to a everybody everybody in the room get tipsy i forgot who it was that jay kwan i think that was the the person who rapped that but spinks yo he was moving bro like i was almost like what rewatched them like how was he not tired getting to the ring because he put on a full-on dance routine into there and then for the rematch when he came out with nelly the same thing when st louis yep yeah man yeah that was the the fateful that started the whole don't get wrapped to the ring because that shit is a curse yeah 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 (laughs) but i mean yes like he was definitely even now like i remember a couple years back he was on some social media doing some goofball ass dancing you know he's he seems like a a good character too but uh and and for me like i'm you know i'm partial to this Banks family you know i love leon from my experiences with him but when i when i used to work for cedric i probably told this story before on the on the podcast but when he would put on the show called the fight to educate which was like a charity event in new hampshire when you know he put on fighters whatever he promoted the whole event he always would bring in like celebrities the schmooze with the people sitting at the tables and all that and that year he couldn't afford some of the celebrities he was well not that he could afford that this the people he was trying to get like larry holmes the evander holyfield were just throwing out stupid ass prices for them for, you know for their services what so we're like, you know, fuck that. I told said, I was like, honestly, if you want to um, more bang for your buck. And I was like, these people won't know the difference either way. I was like, get the Sphinx family. And, you know, and Cedric's accent, I said, I saw him. He thought about it. He stroked his chin. He goes, that's a great idea. <laughs> and he was like, call Butch Lewis. And I was like, really? So I tried to call Butch and got him on the phone with Cedric and, um, and that was cool because like Butch hadn't been in boxing for a few years at that point, even though he was still kind of managing a fighter named Farouk Salim. And Butch told him, he was like, you want, he was like, you want the Spinks family, put Salim on the card who hadn't fought in a couple of years. He was like, you got a deal. And Cedric was like, yeah, fuck it. I don't care. Sure. So Butch Lewis reached into his sleeveless tux and grabbed his cell phone. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I'm proud to say I was the last person that got the, that, that, uh, that did business, that did business with Butch Lewis in boxing. And I got to be at the press Speaking conference. Of characters. I got to be at the press conference when he, um, it was a press conference. I say that in quotations, but it was like a cool thing. There was a lot of people there from New Hampshire trying to be curious. And Butch Lewis went on a full show and that was awesome to see. Like he was there bragging like it was 19, like it was 1986 again, going up and down, yelling, talking. And then he was like, yeah, man, let me introduce now the Spanks, the Spanks family, my brothers. And like, it was cool as shit. I'm not even going to lie. That was pretty awesome. And each one of them made a speech, like Michael made a speech, Leon made a speech, Corey made a speech. I got to hang out with all of them all weekend. I got to go to dinner with Butch and Cedric and you know a couple of others and just listen to them share stories all night. Like that was a beautiful time, man. For for a fight freak like me who's obsessed with the 80s and other times, to sit with that type of people and to hang out with Butch Lewis, that was cool. 
definitely on the level of those kind of like uh wrestling hype men wrestling promoter wrestling manager type and and i got to witness that man like he was a total into that even if you watch them on those um hbo documentaries when they talk about ali and frazier because butch lewis was close to frazier and you hear him he's like he hits him with a left hook like you know he gets all animated man butch lewis was a character yeah dude that's for sure um the whole the whole Sphinx brothers story is a it's a it's a pretty entertaining story there's a lot of good elements to it and i mean it's really unfortunate that leon had to pass away somewhat recently rest in peace, leon, man. yeah man that. rest in yeah. peace for sure but he was he was somebody who made a lot of people happy that's right. for sure absolutely that's for sure so i wanted to talk about another family uh that I figured you probably would not have brought up and that I hinted at on social media the other day, but um, you know, and also because I want to branch out, I want to not just talk about American or like, you know, British families or whatever. I wanted to do a little bit more too. For instance, I wanted to talk about the Penalosas. basically dude, the Penalosas in the Philippines are, they're like boxing royalty. And I mean, as, and they should be, and here's why, right? So Carl Penalosa, he was a two-time junior welterweight uh, champion in the Philippines, a Filipino champion, not a world champion in the 1960s. And the best fighters he fought were Stan Harrington and Takeshi Paul Fuji, of course, a very heavy punching fighter who shortly thereafter won the junior welterweight championship. Um, Dude was a dude was a murderous puncher. He's on. There's a handful of his fights on YouTube. You can go see. He had a like. For instance, there's a uh, one of the knockouts that he scored was against. Gosh, now I'm trying to. I'm drawing a blank, but he scored an absolutely fucking brutal knockout that was like title. that knockout knockout of the year uh, level. Like just fucking. Why am I drawing a blank? Help me, Aris. I'm drawing a blank too right now. Oh man. Well, in any case, he was, he was a really hard punching fighter. And so it's not surprising that Carl Penalosa actually lost to him in two rounds by knockout. You know, nothing wrong with that. He's like on a pound for pound level. Paul Fuji's probably a lot higher than most people realize, despite the fact that, you know, he's not very well known. And a lot of that. He's a footnote, bro. Everybody knows that if they know him, they know he's the dude that uh, lost to Loche and like Loche just put a masterclass on against them type deal. Right. And I mean, I guess he was uh, considered somewhat crude uh, to, to some people, but he was just a heavy punching guy. And, um, it's there's no shame to losing to you know paul fuji or anything like that but because of the the lower weights and stuff like that a lot of those guys are often dismissed but point is carl penulosa was the father of jerry penulosa jonathan penulosa and Dodie boy penulosa so most people these days are probably going to know jerry penulosa from like the latter day version from a handful of years ago where he very unfortunately took out one of my favorite fighters Johnny Gonzalez that With day a was body shot, bro. That day was my nine 11 dude. <laughs> day was my Trojan war. So, yeah. but Jerry, first of all, Jerry Penalosa, Jerry is, is short for Geronimo. So that's pretty fucking cool. So, I mean, he was actually, Jerry Penalosa was, was actually extremely popular in the Philippines in the 1990s. Uh, he held a world title, of junior bantamweight and then he took Johnny Gonzalez's title at bantamweight nearly 10 years later. 
So obviously Jerry Penalosa. I mean, he was also a he was a popular fighter because he had a good punch, and he came to fight and he could take a punch too. So he made for entertaining TV and he went fairly far. Dude, um, I saw him on Tuesday Night Fights one time, which was like really random. You remember that? I don't. I'm trying to think of what fight that oh, would have he been. Fought, he fought um a guy, a fringe contender who died years ago by the name of Apollo Sacito. Epilopito Polo Saucedo. Hmm. But I remember I watched it on Tuesday Night Fights and I had just read about Penelosa at Ring Magazine after becoming champion by um, beating a, a very good fighter by the name of uh, Hiroshi Kawashima. And I don't, I wasn't like I was, I didn't, you know, I was a kid back then. We were talking, uh, I was 12 at this point. So it was not like I knew, you know, knew what was going on. I put on as the summertime or something like that. And I put on um, Tuesday night fights and there's Jerry Pernalosa, who I just read about. And I know he's from, a, I know he's from the Philippines, a country that's not usually featured in America. I'm like, the fuck is he doing fighting? What was the fight at? At Foxwoods. <laughs> <laughs> Damn dude. I, I, man, they used to put on some shit at Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, right? bro. Like, I mean, yeah, if there was, only, yeah, but, that was the time, and bro, I'm not gonna lie, he put on a clinic because I had seen Saucedo before fight um, Marco Antonio Barrera's brother, uh, and he got robbed on that. And then I read that he fought Danny Romero and gave him a hell of a fight. So I, you know, I was familiar with him, but Penalosa put on a clinic, man, just like just shut him down. And I was like, wow, he was really impressive. Like he really caught my eye. And then I didn't see him again for years because he just went back to you know fighting fighting contenders back in, um, you know, in Asia and such and other places, stuff like that. But like, um, yeah, dude, Penalosa has always just been like a technician, just one of those guys, just very, very underrated because of the lower weight divisions. But even if he's never been like one of the best fighters in the world, he's always just been a solid pro through and through. Yeah. And his, his brother, Dodie boy, Penalosa, mm -hmm. a two division champion in the 1980s himself, pretty popular, a uh, good fighter, you know, uh, also, I should say a fairly underrated couple of division in the 80s, flyweight and junior flyweight. You know, those were really underrated divisions. And I mean, underrated for obvious, obvious reasons, because there's a shitload of non-American fighters littering the divisions at these times, especially a ton of Korean fighters. Yes. And I mean, dude, the Koreans never fucking get love from the American fight fans. It's just that's just a. It's a tragic, tragic fact, unfortunately. But you know, these anyone? Hall of Fame. Hello. Dude, I know. I get sick of seeing the name there. I'm like, bro, you guys suck. But you know, in any case, uh oh also John Penulosa, the other uh Carl Penulosa's other kid, also a very good fighter, but unfortunately he was knocked out quite badly by Kim Yong Gang when he challenged for the WBA flyweight title in nineteen uh 92 and he just kind of like never recovered from there after that he had three straight losses and that was it for him unfortunately but Dodi boy's sons Dodi boy jr and dave penulosa were also so carl penulosa's grandkids what they were professionals and they were doing pretty well Dodi boy jr was unbeaten at like i think 19 and 0 uh dave was something like like 19 and 1 but they both seem to have just stopped fighting for whatever reason. So in any case, like I said, opening up, dude, the Penulosa family's royalty in the Philippines. And Absolutely. this is why. That's, that was a good call because I wanted to brought that up. Yeah, dude, I, I I just came upon it like on by accident and was like, you know what? I should bring them up, dude.
because I don't know enough about him. So let's learn. Well, here's a fun fact too. Jerry Penalosa was featured on the very first fight that was ever that uh, that ever featured Punch Zone on HBO because I was working it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Jerry Penalosa against Juan Mal Lopez. So all right. Um, I mean, that was the the punches were. Pre- I mean, it was fucking awesome for something that we were working on for months before that from the beginning of the year you know and testing it and testing it to see finally see the light of day and to hear it too this is our new app punch zone and blah blah blah. and then you see it and then i felt bad for penelosa right away because his face looked like you know all the colors on the on the remember the body that they had for punch zone right where they would show the graphic and all the yeah yeah Yeah, his face and body just looked like a dark plum because (laughs) my you know beat the hell out of him but um Dude, at his peak, Juan Juan Lopez was a bruiser, bro. Very much so. But Penalosa, man, for him, for a lower weight division guy to be at that level when he was considered washed all the way, well, not washed, but a little bit past it back in like 98 when he originally lost his championship to Inju Cho. Um, he was, you know, very consistent because he still lost a few fights here and there, like, but he was always still near the top, never really got blown out. And then, like you mentioned, you know, the win over Johnny Gonzalez and everything. So. Yeah, um, shit still hurts my heart. I get it, man. That was a very sudden. And Gonzalez was winning every second of the fight, and that was just a sudden ending. And then yeah, uh, he had just a couple heartbreakers, dude. Israel Vasquez, that shit hurt my heart too. I do, it was like, man. Oh. That poor Ray Bautista. Oh, bro, beat the shit off, man. Oh man, Ray Boom that was Boom the same Bautista. Card, right? What's that? that was the same card against Ponce de Leon, wasn't it? Yeah, Ray Boom Boom Bautista. Poor, poor kid. I saw him fight live like three or four times before that, and I remember like, you know, he had a lot of hype behind him, and I was, I remember yeah. cracking up because I was like, yeah, dude, I've seen this kid fight before, and everybody's like, who's he? Oh man, he took one. That was poor bad. guy. But all right, let's have some fun with the next one though, because. I want to talk about two guys who were came up in the nineties. They both had that's your era, man. Yeah, and they were heavyweights. So we're talking Peter McNeely and Buster Mathis Jr. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that's that's a pretty yeah that's a pretty good set there, dude. Not gonna lie, I I didn't think to bring up the Mathis brother, but I but the McNeelys were on my list. They were on my list for sure. yeah, but um, you know, Buster Master Senior, who was a top, con- well, I want to say top contender, but a contender in his day, top amateur, um, was going to be the representative of the um, '64 Olympics until he broke, uh, until he injured himself or whatever it was, and then Joe Frazier took over, subsequently won the gold medal. But yeah, I was going to say, wasn't he in the first leg? of that wba tournament buster mathis senior yeah now i'm gonna gonna have to look but uh, maybe not i want to say no no he was not yeah yeah, he might have been one of so i know that there were a couple he was fighting those guys he was around that era and he was a contender to an era of fighting similar you know guys but i don't think he was a part of that tournament he did fight jerry quarry if that's what you're thinking Um, i'm trying to think of what it was then because i know that at the start of that tournament they they had initially announced like about half of the fighters that were initially announced actually went through with the tournament and he might have been among them, but regardless, was regardless, I was wrong. So yeah, he would Bonavena was in the tournament. He wound up okay. beating 
the uh, the dude in Hamburg. Um, Carl Mildenberger. Yeah, Carl, Carl Mildenberger, and then lost after that. But yeah, anyway, point is, yeah, Buster Mathis was among those contenders. But he, you know, Buster Mathis Sr. always had the... Um... Always, always had that strike against him that he was overweight, blubbery, and you know not with a lot of heart. And he didn't really do a lot to, um, I guess, to quell the, you know, quell all those like dispel things. that or whatever. Yeah, yeah dispel, exactly. That's the word, dispel. Yeah, he didn't really do anything to dispel a lot of that. Like he showed promise. Don't get me wrong. When he fought Joe Frazier for the New York State Heavyweight Championship, not full undisputed because there was a lot going on with Ali's retirement. He outboxed Frazier for the beginning of the fight. Because, look, if you put Buster Mathis Sr. and Joe Frazier together in amateur for three-round fights, Mathis will come out as the winner 99 out of 100 times, right? I would say, I mean, that may find, sound weird to say, but, like, that's the same well, yeah, thing. Well, yeah, and, and Frazier's style wasn't made for, like, the amateur anyway. Exactly. But Mathis' style exactly. probably was. Exactly. And as pros, when they finally met up for that championship, Mathis, the same thing for the first four or five rounds, was outbound, was outboxing Frazier thoroughly. It looked like a repeat of their amateur fights. But now we're in the pros and Mathis is so bad. And this is a and this is an interesting thing. Like you've seen blubbery heavyweights that can move. And Mathis was one of the early was one of the early ones from back in that era. You know what I mean? Like that people used to really joke on because the dude had like loads on him. Like, you know, he had he had bold. that Frankie Swindell. Yeah, except he was taller. So he wasn't <laughs> as like you know, he didn't have the gut that Swindell did because he was a little bit taller, but totally had the same body shape that if he was shorter, you can notice that. You know what I mean? He had the he had the the man boobs hanging out and the gut and everything else, the side hanging, but he could move. He was slick. He was a he was a boxer and he was good on his feet. He had a good jab. You know, he didn't have a ton of power, but he could outbox you. And so that's you know, he he was for himself like he probably could have did well in those Olympics, but I don't know, for whatever reason, he decided to pull out of it. And that's when Frazier, with a broken thumb nonetheless, was still able to go through and, you know, pull out a gold medal. And yeah, he never really panned out as a pro. He had some success. He beat George Chevallo. He beat, you know, some other French contenders from the era. But anytime he really had to step up, he lost. He lost to Ali. He lost to Jerry Corey. And, you know, he got knocked out by Frazier when he had the chance to fight for the for the title. So he, you know, he, he kind of fell short with everything, but he was still a contender from that era. But the Matt Buster Mathis Jr. And when he came through, kind of in the same mold of his dad, except a completely different style because he was trained by Customato, which you had mentioned earlier. Yeah, and well, and I mean, uh, unfortunately too, like he didn't, he wasn't really a heavy punching dude, and he and he was like a, I mean, he wasn't an unskilled guy. It's just that some fighters can fight in that style. And the problem also is that like, he wasn't a tall dude. And so like, yeah, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Buster Mathis Jr. He was like six, six foot one or something like that. And so he wasn't a super tall guy. And then he would still come in weighing like 220, 230. And he would try to fight in that kind of uh, what they call the peekaboo style. And, you know, it just works for some guys and for some other guys. It would work for Tyson because Tyson had power to be able to fight on the inside and slip and slide and get in there and do that. If you watch Mathis and he kind of did the, you know, similar and he was slick in there, he was a good fighter. He had no power. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem is that even, even with Floyd Patterson, who himself was an undersized heavyweight, he could punch hard enough that, yeah, like 
you'd wobble him or you'd knock him down or whatever. But you, man, if he caught you, like you were in deep shit. And a lot of Customados fighters, I mean, Jose Torres wasn't quite like that, but he was uh, just a much more skilled fighter. And so he could put it all together. Buster Mathis Jr. just could not put it together in that way. And then also, like you said, Mike Tyson had the, the foot speed. That was one of the key elements of Mike Tyson's success early on was how quickly he was able to get around with his feet. And Buster Mathis Jr. was not there. Like, so he, you know, he was employing that same style, only far more stationary and with no, no power. So it's, it, it ain't going to work. Um, bringing up his record really quick, just to confirm what I was thinking in, in which and that is, is that Buster Mathis Jr. also can, um, also had to his advantage that he got some, he had a few fights that should have been losses ended up being whether it was a no decision or, or something or another. For instance, he had lost to, which I remember it was uh, Mike Hunter, Mike the Bounty Hunter, who was another awkward heavyweight from the, from the 90s. And Hunter, I believe, was that he's, um, he tested positive for something after the fight, and it was changed to a no decision. Then you remember the Riddick Bull fight after that, right? Yeah. So, and he, get, he gets the bull fight, and... I mean, you know, like he he's hanging in there. Bo was going through that transition that he was like being lazy and not really just going through the motions. But even so, Bo was like, I, I watched that live with my dad. I remember that, but I didn't really know what was going on back then. But I mean, I'm reading about it and everything. Like Mathis is just kind of hanging in there, but Bo is clearly superior. Finally, he goes down from a combination and then Bo hits him while he's on the ground. And instead of getting disqualified, it's, again, it becomes just kind of like a draw, no decision, whatever. So... Mathis is like benefiting from this. He still has an undefeated record, even though he probably should have lost a couple of times by now. And still in him being like a, a safe contender, a guy with a name, Cedric Kushner promoted him and who had a lot of pull back then. It was, it was an easy access to get him to fight Tyson when they had that fight on Fox. Yeah, dude, that, that was uh, during a leg of, you know, Tyson's career that was that was that was not exactly you know prime Tyson that we're talking about in 1996 and for the entire fight he was actually losing that until he finally landed that one punch that flattened Mathis but you know Buster Mathis I I wanted to mention it because like he he was one of the dudes he did he he had a career that was he was a recognizable heavyweight during a very deep era in the 90s he clearly wasn't going to make it to the top but he, he got a lot of attention and he got some, you know, featured fights out of that because of his fight with Tyson. He got knocked out, but I mean, he put on a respectable performance that he got on not, um, boxing after dark soon after. And um, he fought Obed Sullivan. I think it was on boxing after dark. And then soon after that, he ended up fighting another popular undefeated heavyweight at the, at the time, Lou Savarese. And then his career kind of faded. So. Well, and, and there's also another little intersection here, too, with uh, one of that era's, you know, Mike Tyson from that era, too, or roughly that era. And that's, you brought up Peter McNeely. Yes. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, like, it, it just transitions beautifully here, you know, that's from from the 1980s, you know, the, to the yeah. 1990s mullet and mullet and all, bro. <laughs> Hurricane McNeely. Wrap you in my cocoon. This is for my brothers. 
fathers, my sisters, Curly, Schnubby, Medfield. Medfield. <laughs> and I, I've said it before, Bo, that that basically sums up New England in the mid-1990s, that interview right there. <laughs> Everything summed up in New England mid-1990s is that Peter McNeely interview. Trust me, I live there. I know. <laughs> you just need a couple of crab cakes. You know, I need <laughs> Some lobster rolls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah, dude, that's uh yeah. I, so well, so Tom McNeely, right? Again, man, I guess Customato and and his shit is keeps just kind of figuring into these stories. Tom McNeely winds up fighting uh, you know, uh Floyd Patterson back in the day, right? And I mean this is just another in the string of Customato guiding floyd patterson you know against fighters who probably have no business being in there but they're trying to find these like weird interesting stories and shit like that to reasons to avoid cleveland williams and sonny uliston and basically all these other far eddie machin and far more dangerous fighters and tom mcneely is one of the many fighters who they've kind of dragged up from the fucking depths to face floyd patterson but nonetheless you know a brave guy who who puts up a good effort and kind of sums up you know that just a dude who did not make it over that hump whatsoever and well, then he had no business fighting for the heavyweight championship no yeah, a number of those Pete Rademacher, none of those people did, dude. What the fuck were they doing in there? I mean, bro, like, imagine if Twitter was around back then, how people would have treated Customato and his conspiracy theories. Oh, my gosh, dude. Yeah, well, and, yeah, I mean. They would have absolutely tore him up, and rightfully so. Yeah, uh, bro. Well, don't get me wrong. Like, I know D'Amato gets a lot of, uh, Customato gets a lot of love today for what he did for Tyson and everything else and being, like, this guru mind and all that. Yeah, and, but he's weird, bro. Yes, and sorry, the way he's got he, some like, fucking question marks on him. I'm sorry, bro. Like when you're heavyweight champion, Floyd Patterson's a two-time heavyweight champion, and your best wins come after you become champion. After you become champion, you're a two-time heavyweight champion, and your very best wins of your career become after you become champion when you get rid yeah. of him. That tells you all you need to know. Yeah, like dude. Archie Morrow is a good win. Don't get me wrong, but like, look at his title reign. That, that just ain't. You know, yeah, the title reign's with? bad. It's bad. Both of them were both reigns. And then when he finally got when he finally got rid of D'Amato, Costamato, and was like, "Fuck this, I'm gonna fight Sunny Liston." Got through with it, and then started fighting contenders and after contender and showing his worth in the late '60s up until '72 when he fought Ali in the rematch. Patterson put on some incredible performances, and he just did it on his own. Like he didn't duck anybody at that point. He fought all the tough dudes. He fought all the tough guys. Got robbed sometimes. Lost. A yeah, couple had of a couple of close losses that he could have won. Absolutely, but he still fought them all. You know what I mean? He yeah. was fighting Jerry Core. He was fighting Bonavina. He was fighting George Chavalo. I like got robbed against Jimmy Ellis. He showed his worth at that point. He showed why he was a Hall of Famer. Yeah, that's that's the unfortunate thing is like what he he potentially you know there was a. It was a it was a rough break, dude. Get have been at the same time as a guy like Sonny Liston, that just style style stylistically, size wise, everything was just the worst matchup for Floyd Patterson. You know, like other styles he possibly could have overcome. That guy, no, it was just not going to happen for him, pretty much ever. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But 
yeah, like you said, dude, like in the subsequent years, he obviously proved that he was a really good fighter. But man, some of the some of the guys that he fought during that time were so bad. And the lengths that Customato would go to to protect him. I know exactly. Were so. weird. They're fucking weird. Like to, to the point where, like, you know, people would be. Well, anyway, whatever. Yeah, social media would have a field day. You're right on that for sure. Imagine a guy like our guy Lefty or any of those other, like, you know, or people who are very outspoken, who I respect their opinions because they, they make Yeah, who would take it to these fucking ask some questions yeah, exactly. straight up. Yeah, yeah, straight yeah. up. You know I mean? They would tear their ass up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, yeah, there's, there was some just kind of funky shit going on. And especially, you know, I guess you just have to say anytime somebody loudly decrees how righteous they are all of the time, you got to start questioning because Customato sure. was always talking about, you know, the mob doesn't touch me. I'll never touch the mob, never work the mob. And I'm like, mm. all you got to do is show a modicum skill and then you'll automatically, mm. you're, you know, you're with Lil Custer Nostra. So, but, <laughs> yeah, dude. So he, I'm just saying. That equated Tom McNeely brought in, you know, soon after that in the, in the very early 90s out in Medfield, birthed his son Peter who was making the rounds as a heavyweight um as a popular heavyweight that's how i'll put it popular heavyweight so and the, you know if you want to watch some of his early fights they're on youtube you can find them it, it's pretty hysterical it, it's a typical new england like you would see like if you want to see new england in the 90s this is what it looked like on a friday night everyone would go to like the, the bfw outlet and see a guy that peter mcneely would bowl over in in half a second everyone would go crazy drink a lot of beer get excited you know drive go, home in their i rock z Yes, you know. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, totally. So McNeely scored a, a bunch of wins, getting a very popular around the, around the area or New England in general. And I, you know, I don't want to use a stereotype, but it's always true. Whenever a white heavyweight gets a lot of momentum and everyone gets really excited, you know, gets a lot of mm -hmm. noise going around them, people get interested, especially at Don King, who is still very active in the 90s and is looking for a fighter like that to, you know, make money with. So it's, it's that exact scene from the great white hype, bro. Yes, totally. Where they're watching videos of white boys who are yeah. <laughs> like that. That's and, the, were, and that I love that they scene. showed real clips that they showed like Ardris Eklund getting shot. Yeah. By Tim Witherspoon. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, so, and then they were commenting on it too. Like, Ooh, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh man i saw that and he was like oh you were at this fight julio south africa julio really <laughs> like but um anyways so mcneely was getting a lot of prominence so of course don king came sniffing around because he saw an easy bait for either mike tyson or oliver mccall originally he had plans because he wasn't sure when tyson was going to get out or you know whatever it may be that mccall was going to defend against peter mcneely in the uh, recently renovated boston garden so that was, that was his whole scheme. They were going to, you know, put that on there, which would have been an absolute fiasco <laughs> of epic proportions. Because McCall would have killed him. atomic bull. Yeah. yeah. McCall would have killed him. Then he would have talked a lot of shit on the mic. And every, all the drunk, you know, Bostonians would have lost their mind and probably, like, you know, destroyed the place before the Celtics even got to play there. So that's what you're looking at. Instead, McNeely ended up fighting Mike Tyson and all the infamous quotes and everything that we love you know, went through from that. Hey, go get the car. Peter! Yeah. Peter! But to McNeely's credit, man, he ended up getting that uh, Pizza Hut commercial afterwards where he got knocked out by the pepperoni slice. I remember that. Yeah, I mean, that shit's on YouTube, but I remember that from the time. 
like at Absolutely. the time that shit, was, yeah. that shit was national bro i remember that shit at the time yeah nah you know in his uh, face too but before when he was standing tyson's eyes going back and forth you see mcneely with that dopey grin yeah like this boy this guy just does not know what's <laughs> happening to him in about 90 seconds oh i had boy. my whole family i had a bunch of uncles and cousins over to watch that i'm sure that was that was around television sets all over the country oh yeah we got that shit i remember i remember we got that shit and of course it was like uh you know we got that shit and then moments later i think it was like my stepdad was just like bunch of bullshit bunch of fucking bullshit you know something like that oh yeah you know because we didn't didn't have a black box yeah we had a black box no one complained (laughs) yeah we didn't have a black box i'd like i don't know if my mom would have gone for like my mom would have been like i've heard people get arrested for that you know my mom would have said some shit i was born to secrecy bro i was not allowed to talk about the black box my parents i mean i would have trust me i would have been great yeah. I I would have loved to fucking, but we didn't know, nah, but we ordered that shit, but I, it was like moments later, you know, it was like a bunch of fucking oh, shit, you know, yeah. that's why boxing is, yeah, bro, that's fixed, you know, that type of shit. But I mean, uh, but Peter McNeely, dude, like, I guess I, he really was only popular in, in the Northeast. Like he, I, I didn't really ever, I can't really ever say that I've seen a lot of, uh, before, no, he was a New guy, man. Look, look. Yeah, before he got the Tyson shot, you know what I mean? Like, there might have been a couple of TV spots before then, the but 90s, he was not a... When McNeely was coming to prominence, all right, the Celtics at that point were, like, going through a tailspin. They weren't trying to win any championships, and they were struggling in the playoffs. Patriots were fucking garbage at that point. I am, I'm not a football fan, but I can tell you from all accounts of my uncles and everyone else, they sucked. I, I can actually back that up and that's only because there was a classmate of mine uh, right around that time who wore like patriots gear every single day and like oh, no. every day it was like fifth sixth grade she, she fully used to get like clowned for it like daily I'm sure like, yeah man. Suck, you know? not bringing us to prominence like tom brady would all right so true story it was only till the early 2000s when we turned everything around and then I don't follow hockey, but I would assume I would have known if um, the Boston Bruins were doing any business back then. And they would have made <laughs> some news. So we had Peter McNeely. That's what we had, okay? <laughs> you know, we didn't all have our, a all our hopes. <laughs> all our New England hopes rested on Peter McNeely. I mean, Mickey Ward, what, Mickey Ward didn't really, you know, build anything until the late 90s himself, all right? In 1994, 95, that's what everybody's hope was on was Peter McNeely. And trust me, people, go on YouTube. Type in Peter McNeely interviews from before the Tyson fight. Everybody in Medfield and that whole section in Massachusetts actually thought he was going to win. All right? It wasn't even BS. You interview him, oh, yeah, I think Peter's going to pull it off. Blah, 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 blah. That, we had nothing else to believe in back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough, dude. That's I'm rough. I'm just keeping it real, man. I'm from a person who was born and raised in New England. I know how it was in the 90s. <laughs> oh, man, you're about to be disowned. All these fools who are rooting for McNeely at the time are about to disown your ass. Yeah, I gotta keep it real, man. I love Hurricane Pete. Definitely one of the greatest, like, you know, 90s characters for sure. Totally, totally, man. I'm glad that he was able to parlay that, you know, blitz from Tyson into into some money with the Pizza Hut and whatever else. He's, yeah, he he knocked himself into history. Good for Pete. A definite fucking goofball. That's for sure. So uh, let's see. I'll uh I will take it to the UK. I will take this one to the UK. I'm gonna say Jack London, no, not that Jack London, the fighter Jack London and Brian London. Oh, okay. 
so, you know, I guess for whatever reason, I just never put two and two together. Like I, I know of both of them. Jack I, London, the promoter. No, uh, oh. no, Jack it's London. Cool. There was the writer, Jack London, the American so, writer. Oh, no, I'm thinking of someone else. I'm sorry. Jack yeah. Solomon's you might be thinking of. Yeah. something. Like Mr. Boxing, the London promoter. That yeah. might be what you're thinking of. But in any case, uh, Jack London, I knew of him and I knew of Brian London, obviously, but I just, I, I never really put it together that they were related. So Jack London, Brian London's father, Jack London was a 1940s Commonwealth British heavyweight champion. And then uh, Brian was, it's, it's, dude, it's actually the, the amount of time that, that separated their careers was actually kind of remark remarkably s small. But if you look at the photos of Jack London, the dude looks like, I don't know, he, he basically looks like the dude who plays Vizzini in The Princess Bride. Like he's like bald and lo he looks like Bob Fitzsimmons. Just like he looks like somebody who's just your corner store fucking guy. Like he looks, he does not look like a fighter whatsoever, but, but you know, in any case, uh, well, I'll get to Brian in a moment. Jack defeated Freddie Mills, Larry Gaines, you know, the, the Toronto Larry terror, Gaines is a very good fighter, the Toronto well, terror, Larry Gaines underrated, but, uh, he was Max also, what's that? Knocked out Max Schmeling. That's right. He was also unfortunately defeated soundly by a smaller Tommy Loughran. And he was knocked out by Bruce Woodcock. Um, but Brian was the common Commonwealth British heavyweight champion in the late 1950s. Jack had only been retired for about five or six years when Brian won the ABA heavyweight title in 1955. But obviously, Brian London, he got a lot farther than Jack London. He beat Willie Pastrano, Zora Foley, Tom McNeely, we were just talking about. Um, but he also beat Jim Cooper who was Henry Cooper's twin. And he wound up paying dearly for that because Henry Cooper kicked the shit out of Brian London three times, knocked him out the first time and then decisioned him the next two times. Um, and so anyway, they both kind of ended up more on the, like, I guess you could say journeyman end of the spectrum, but Brian definitely took more chances than his dad did and also in a better division. Mm -hmm. So that accounts for far more losses, I think. But um, I guess his claim to fame, Brian London, that is, is fighting Muhammad Ali in 1966 and also being the recipient of a punch in a really famous photograph of Muhammad Ali, you know, catching a dude and the guy's like, Ooh, you know, his face is all distorted. That's Brian London. Oh, man. Well, London, yeah, exactly. London was one of those guys. He was a, he was a heavyweight contender from his time. And... Not a bad fighter, but a dude that again had a had a ceiling for where he was going to be at, and if any time he was going to really be stepped up, he was going to get blasted out pretty spectacularly because he had the greatest chin. Patterson knocked him out. There was a there's a famous photo of him laying on the canvas after Patterson flattened him. Uh, it was not laying on it, but he's kind of like on the ropes, sort of like looking up, just you know, completely bewildered and done. And then the same thing with Ali, you know. But he wasn't a bad guy at that time. But that was a really good one because that wasn't something I really thought of. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that they both, they both uh, came into the British heavyweight title in somewhat fortunate circumstances too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like they obviously only topped out as like the best regionally, 
where they were as the British heavyweight champion because they never got beyond really that level for the most part. I mean, defeating Zora Foley, even if it's like not a great version of Zora Foley, is still an it's accomplishment. It's still a big win, man, because Zora Foley was a criminally underrated He's a very, very good fighter. So very. it's, you know, that's not that's not nothing. Another one of the Plastomato somehow uh, somehow associated with the mob, a.k.a. you're too good of a fighter to fight Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Yeah, at that point, I think... Uh, hard to remember exactly, actually. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's... Yeah, he's he should be talked about far more. No question. Zora Foley. because of his death, too, man. We should do a podcast on that one day. I was actually thinking about that the other day. We'll get to that one. We got to go A to Z. He's at the end. But, All right, so here's... Like, here's here, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was, I was just going to say, as far as the circumstances, uh, Jack London wound up... Uh, I think it was Len Harvey like relinquished the British heavyweight title or something like that. And then Jack London wound up defeating on like a split decision or something like that. And then lost it in his first defense. And then Brian London wound up defeating, I want to say it was Joe Erskine, who was the guy that uh, Henry Cooper just absolutely fucking, you know, obliterated like awfully. And then anyway, long story short, I think that they both topped out at that certain level, but even then were kind of like just barely <laughs> chugga, chugga, chugga got there. So anyway, yeah, I figured that would be a good one that we probably wouldn't bring up otherwise. Well, here's another one too that I'm not sure if you would have thought of. What was the first father-son combo to fight um, on the same card? Give me a second. I know it. Give me a second. Oh, dude, because because someone brought this trivia up like years ago and I didn't know it and learned might it. Might have then. been me, actually. <laughs> it it honestly might have been you. Oh shit. I don't know it. I don't know. Last name is Mosley. Rocky Mosley Sr. and Jr. Damn. Okay. No, I did not know that. I'm not gonna go like bullshitting. in depth with this, but over yeah, that was that was the first. Because when Shane Mosley was talking about him and his kid fighting, they're like, oh, we're making history. First off, that wasn't not even close to being the first time that a father and son fought in the same yes, It wasn't even the first Mosley. Yeah, and it wasn't even the first <laughs> Mosley's to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what You know, hilarious. yeah, yeah, man. Um, in 1975, uh, Rocky Mosley Sr. not lost to Mike Lancaster while Rocky Jr. knocked out Al Foster. Rocky Mosley Sr. was a guy that fought from <laughs> like the he, he was like active in the late 50s and the 60s up until you know he got murdered in the late 70s but he was a dude that was like featured uh, kind of a mysterious fighter not not a lot out there on him I've tr trust me I've tried to look but um a guy that fought out in Vegas and other stuff his record is probably incomplete but didn't have a winning record, but I mean, was a veteran that fought a lot of guys and, you know, fought around the area and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff shrouded with him. There's stories, there's other here, hearsay there and there, but like a lot of fighters from that era that there's not a lot documented on, it's more so just stories as opposed to like concrete evidence of what's been written about him. But what's been known is that, you know, he was a good, he was a decent fighter. He wasn't bad. Um, his record is totally incomplete because we don't really know what besides what BoxRec has for, you know, actually confirmed fights, I'm sure there's a lot more out there on that. And especially when he was competing in Vegas and other outposts in, in that era, there probably wasn't a lot of record keeping going on. So um, there's what that. Years, what years was it? 
probably in the late 50s early uh, oh yeah that would have been pretty early for vegas then yeah. in the let's see right now actually so i can click yeah 57 to 1977 yeah so, that would that would have been pretty early for vegas then yeah for sure so, yeah so I'm, I'm you know it definitely wasn't that you know a lot of stuff that he was going through and everything like that probably wasn't documented as much his kid though rocky mosley jr was a contender in the junior middleweight middleweight divisions in the uh, late seventies in the, uh, up until the early eighties. And I think one like a, an a, an ABF title, USBA, one of those titles that still had prominence back then. And, um, was a good, was a good all around fighter. Nice. I, that's one I 100% definitely would not have brought up for sure. No, I just, I did. It's just like a cool piece of trivia. I even not stumped for sure. at one time. I, he was, probably, I didn't even know there was a Rocky Mosley senior. <laughs> I should probably fucking write that down somewhere. When I go through and edit this, I'll probably write that down. That's, yeah. That is good trivia for sure. I feel like, I feel like you told me that before, but yeah, I'm sure we brought it up, but there's really like Rocky Mosley as any guy that there's no, not a lot of stuff on, but I know they had like a sketchy past and they had a bad ending and whatever. I want to know more about it. And yeah, totally. when there's not a lot on the on the internet about them, besides like you know what they have on Boxrec, which is just kind of exactly right here. When you look at his, you go on Boxrec, you look at his first thing. Mosley's entire career is a mystery. Career career record is a mystery. A young man during the beat gen- generation, um, Mosley traveled around boxing in various locations throughout the United States. Mosley's favorite spots were Las Vegas of the 1950s and 60s and Alaska. Many of his fights did not find their results way to the local papers of the ring record book. Damn. All right. So. Okay. I mean, yeah, I would say Alaska is certainly not a boxing locale, generally speaking. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, I would say that's for sure a fucking, that's off the beaten path. And yeah, in that era, Las Vegas definitely was not. Uh, Vegas, uh, Vegas and Alaska. That's where he was, that's where he was hanging out around. Wowzers. So. Yo, dude, one of the, that's like the second most prominent Alaskan boxing figure, second to Tex Rickard when he was ch- chilling there for a gold rush and shit. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good shit, dude. That's good trivia for sure. Yeah. Let's see, I, I got a decent one here because mostly because there was some backstory that I honestly didn't even know about. Um, so they're actually Wilfredo Vasquez Sr. and Wilfredo Vasquez Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty decent father-son combo. I'll, sure. fa- I'll fairly briefly go through the story. This is actually on Wilfredo Vasquez's Wikipedia page which is surprising. And I initially was like, yeah, I'm questioning this because this sounds like a bunch of bullshit, but it actually was, it cited the, the citation is a book that was written about the history of Puerto Rican boxing. So I'm kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm inclined to believe it then, but regardless, that doesn't mean it's true, but regardless, according to urban legend here, urban Wikipedia legend, um, Wilfredo Vasquez was not a fighter until he was about 18 years old and he began training because his father had died and his father had died because he was a big, uh, a big fan or follower of uh, Wilfredo Gomez. And 
at that time, Wilfredo Gomez was about to have a fight against Carlos Zarate and that he had bought tickets for Gomez Zarate and had died like the following day or something like that. And so Wilfredo Vasquez, you know, his son wound up taking up boxing shortly after that. And yeah, he just motivated himself. That's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that story whatsoever. So he motivated himself and he, as an amateur fought 17 Mm -hmm. times, went 14 and three and, uh, didn't wind up pursuing a spot on Puerto Rico's national boxing team because of his age at the time. And he turned professional instead. And yeah, long story short, he wound up actually getting a title shot that he lost, but uh, against Miguel happy Laura. Happy Laura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a, uh, probably a somewhat underrated fighter. Although I see his name pop up fairly frequently on the international boxing hall of fame ballot. And it's just, it's unfortunate because it's like he's just doesn't he his record cannot compare to a number of the people you know that are more worthy but nonetheless a very underrated fighter I want to say Colombian I think and uh in any case he winds up losing that fight but he he became the WBA bantamweight champion in 1987 uh when he beat Park Chen Yang and and it was yeah I think a really big emotional culmination for him to be able to kind of honor his father in that regard, but also, you know, become another Puerto Rican champion, adding to the long list of great champions from Puerto Rico. Um, and then he also captured the junior junior featherweight champion after that. And in any case, um, you know, became a very good fighter, was fairly prominent on TV during the late 80s and a handful of times during the early 90s. You know, yeah, he was featured on HBO and Showtime. Absolutely. I watched him. Yeah, actually, considering, you know, uh, considering the fact that he was bantamweight to featherweight actually got a fair bit of play, all things considered, you know, like mostly those fighters don't get a whole lot of feature, but that's kind of the cutoff, you know, that featherweight is like the cutoff. Well, like he was, I remember the first time I saw him was against Orlando Canizales, when Canizales moved up from bantamweight to challenge him and then lost. Um, I saw him against... uh, was it Rojas? Elio Rojas. Yeah, Elio Rojas, was it right? I think so, yeah. Um, which he scored a coming from behind knockout and ended up being the knockout of the year. Yeah, that was and like then, the that was an absolutely rough, like woof. Oh my god, man. Yeah. Like with the way Mitch Halpern ca- catches that dude to win. Yeah, Rojas like you almost don't even see back. it, but you almost don't even see it. And then you see oh, it like he yeah. like comes around him, like bah! he comes around him and hits him. I'll never forget that as a kid watching that, because I literally thought that was how, when I saw Halpern, that was Halpern being him. so good that he anticipated that that fool is getting blasted. Yes. Caught him mid combination. And he still got kid, blasted anyway. Bro, when I was a kid, I thought that was Halpern's hand hitting his head because the way it goes around, yeah, it yeah, looks yeah. like his head snaps back. It looks like Halpern actually hit him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it's, you know, I, I, yeah, it's crazy. And then when he fought Hamed, obviously, on HBO, so. Yeah, that was obviously, you know, right toward, uh, I guess, kind of like the end of his yeah, effective, yeah. you know, effectiveness as a fighter or whatever. But, you know, that was yet another case of not that much time separating when he was actually a, a world-ranked fighter and when his son got into the game. 
I mean, like this is actually pretty remarkable how quickly the turnaround was there because Wilfredo Vasquez Jr. wound up becoming the, oh God, now I have to look because I, I, I want to make sure, but it, he was, I want to say the WBO, okay, yeah, junior featherweight champion. He did an incredible fight with Jorge Arce in what, 2011? Um, I remember know, that. Yeah. Brutal back and forth fight that that was, you know, ended like kind of last second uh, with Arce scoring the knockout. He definitely um, recovered from that. That was a brutal fight. Yeah, he never, like, he had a couple of pretty good outings and he actually managed to give Nonito Don Donaire some shit in their fight. Like, uh, I think stylistically, it was just a really bad match for Nonito uh, yeah. in some of the rounds. But yeah, he never really quite got back to form after that. And not that he would necessarily be expected to, man. That was a really brutal fight. I got to give him credit, though, because he's always kind of been, from what I've seen, the kind of fighter that's just a serious pain in the ass to deal with. Like, uh, powerful enough that, like, you you don't want to stand around and get hit by him. Yeah. But also, stylistically, the kind of guy who's like, he's going to find you, like, with his punches one way or another. And that, to me, it's not like I had a ton of experience in the ring. But it's like, you don't want to get hit. And then also, on top of not wanting to get hit, it's like when you feel you can avoid getting hit and a guy finds you anyway. Yeah. That, that yeah. shit is one of the most frustrating fucking things. And he always, for whatever reason, he gave me that impression when I watched him. And anyway, he was, he was a pretty fun fighter to watch for the most part. No, absolutely, man. Both father and son. And, yeah, that's you true. Know, I, remember, I remember when, when, um, when Arce stopped him. Do you remember when Vasquez Jr. walked back to his corner? His dad kind of like threw water in his face and just went like threw his hands up at him like saying it's over i like, don't actually know i'd have to look, look you know, at that it's kind of like yeah like kind of cut it off i mean like you know he got stopped but like basket senior like wrapped it around him yeah it's unfortunate yeah i, I mean, mean like and like i'll say this though his kid was a good fighter mm -hmm. and he he did reach more than what people expected he had some good wins and in the mid 20 in like early mid 2010s he was making like you know some noise yeah so. highly respectable yeah. highly respectable yeah uh and like you said a lot of people brushed him off coming up yeah. for sure but highly respectable all right well i want to veer off um you know on my last one here so we met, we mentioned not just like the father the sons of fighters yeah yeah let's talk about the early 2000s when all of a sudden it became popular of the daughters of former champions, heavyweight champions specifically, to, be, uh, to become pros. We're talking Layla Ali, who went on to become the, probably the most prominent one, Jackie Frazier lied, um, the late Frida Foreman, and even Ignamar Johansson's daughter. Do you remember that? I don't. Wow. She did. Yeah, man. Ignamar Johansson's daughter. I watched it on, I think, Fox Sports or some shit. And she turned pro for one fight, or might have been a couple of fights, but whatever fight I watched of hers, I think it was her pro debut, and she got whooped on with, with Ingo Bingo ringside. Ay, 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 rough, dude. But in the early 2000s, when a bunch of daughters, like, you know, that became like the wave all of a sudden. Yeah, dude. I, I mean, yes, I remember that very well. Um, I... I was never really a big fan of Layla Ali and not because I didn't like her or any, or, you know, like I had nothing against her or what, you know I mean? Like, dude, you know, uh, one thing that I guess I haven't really said in, throughout this episode, and I guess I'm just going to grandstand here for a moment. 
get on my pedestal, but it's like, you can't choose your family. You can't choose the family that you're born into. Um, and you know, you can't choose like the people that you love and love you mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff. Right. So like, I'm not, I, I don't want to like trash people for being boxing families or from like, you know, the son or a daughter of like a world champion or something like that. But I just never really liked the fact that for the same reason that everybody else said, you know, that she was afforded the chances because of her name, Layla Ali specifically, and was fighting overmatched, super crappy opponents all of the time. Um, I mean, there was no choice. Like there would, the, the opposition just wasn't there and it's okay. Like I get it, but I'm just saying like for the exact same reasons, I was not really a fan. And so, and also I, I was like, not really entirely sure how good she was because the fighters that she was fighting were that bad. So it was like, you know, I, I, I remember feeling at the time, like kind of resentful, kind of like, what the fuck is this? You know, like, what am I having to watch this here for? But again, looking back, it's like, you know, she did what she could and I get it. She wasn't a bad fighter. So like Ali's nephew, I remember was the first one that tried it. Ibn Ali was his name. Cause I met mm-hmm. him at the hall of fame, me and my best friend. And he looked like his, uh, he looked like his uncle talked like him had the whole thing going on. We were hanging out with him. We were messing with him and all that. He was cool, but he didn't, he didn't pan out as a pro at all. Right. And when Layla came on the scene, everybody, Oh my God, you know, it's Ali's daughter. Yada, yada, yada. And the, obviously the, the women's boxing scene in general, probably in terms of talent wise and everything else, isn't as good as it is today. Right. Cause we're talking still like, this is, the, up, yeah. this is the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, and as a rule, the higher up in weight you get, the worse the opposition Absolutely. is. Just, and that's just how Even it is. Even today, that still stands. Yeah, totally. Totally. So think about it when, when Layla came on the scene around 99, 2000, 2001, whatever it was, right? Like, because we're still talking, you know, when Christy Martin was like beating up just absolute people had no business being in the, being in the ring with her on Showtime. So... When you see Layla Ali's early fights, totally the same thing. These girls have just straight up just being brought up from the bar or wherever they're coming from, have no business being in the ring fighting someone who has... Yeah, even, some of them, like, barely even holding their... Like, not even, like, no holding idea their hands what they're up. Doing. Yeah, her yeah. first few fights, absolutely not. But to her credit, she turned into a really, really good fighter. And, I mean, not a really, really good... But, I mean, like, a, a good enough fighter that, like, she was fighting out of credible opponents of her time, like Val- uh, Valerie Mahfoud and, mm-hmm. and a few others from that era that were, like, decent fighters. And she was beating them and, like, looking good at it. I mean, of course, we all wish she would have fought Ann Wolf when they had the chance, but it is what it is. What I remember even day? calls for her to fight Lucia Riker, who was, I want to say, a welterweight at the time. Well, yeah, she but but they were just like, put Lucia in there with her, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And since she fought Christy Martin. Yeah. Um, but like it was interesting when she turned pro, all of a sudden, Joe Frazier's daughter, Jackie Frazier, had to turn pro soon after that because she had to take the thing. And then George Foreman's daughter, um, Frida, wanted to turn pro as well. And then Ingo's daughter. Like it was crazy to see that all of it was like this whole little thing that, like, you know, for like a year where everybody started turning pro and then it was like everybody started giving attention to it. Yeah, at least with Layla, she, you could tell she studied, she trained, she She developed, 
she improved. And she had good trainers too. She wasn't like, right. like a bad camp or anything. She actually like took it yeah. seriously. And so like, so yeah, I'm not going to walk back what I said about the resentment, but I have to admit that she did improve. She did get better. Yeah. She did show that she was serious and it's not her fault. The opposition was so bad, you know, like it's, she can't create. Yeah. And it's, you can't create, you know, good opponents that when they don't exist, but um, regardless, yeah, you could tell that she much, she definitely got better. Jackie Fraser lied was like, what was she doing? You know, like she, I mean, she just I was basically. There. I was there at the Hall of Fame when they fought at the, at the turning stone. Oh, yeah. Uh, before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, I remember that. And I mean, it was like, you know, I get it. You're like working class lady, you know, you're getting into this too. But it was like, uh, at least with Layla Ali, she was a real fighter. And then mm-hmm. with these other fighters, they was like all a money grab. You know, I mean, it was unfortunate. It totally was, man. You know, um, I feel bad for George and what happened with his family with Frieda and everything. And, you know, yeah. but Ingo's daughter, man, she, bro, she was bad. Like, I don't know why they, why she decided what, what it was or anything, but poor Johansson. I just remember they zoned in on ringside. He just had this look on his face like, what the fuck? You yeah, know bro, is, isn't boxing like banned in Sweden now? Like, I don't even know if, if pro boxing be, is yeah, a thing. Yeah, I'm not even entirely sure, but like, the fight took place in the US. It wasn't. It yeah, wasn't, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is like, she probably is like, it's like, no, box, but she got whooped boxing? up. She got, she got whooped. Like, she got, got beat up. Rough. <laughs> and he was just kind of sitting there like, you know, with his eyes all like a gape and shit. So she like, got that tuner, man. <laughs> yeah, right. But that wow. was just an interesting time. Like I remember all like all, that was the thing. Was, oh yeah, man. You know, former heavyweight champions that daughters are turning pro. Ali Frazier four because they made that the main event of the of the boxing hall of fame weekend at the Turning Stone. On the undercard was Tim Witherspoon, Monty Barrett. Well, and, and a lot of people don't know that Rockman Ali also was a fighter. You know, like yes, that Muhammad Ali's, Ali's brother. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he fought on and he fought on a few cards as Ali too. He um obviously he didn't pan out like him, but you know, he was definitely shut up and you know, the um the name. Yeah, he was obviously you know, he was he was a, an okay fighter, but okay, it was that's the word to put it. Yeah, like it was mostly really had a limit because when he ever he's not even stepping up to fringe contenders like yeah. Slightly nah. journeyman, he still lost to. Yeah. And I yeah, I think it was pretty clear. But he used to get in and they used to do sparring exhibitions and shit like that every so often. And he used to train with with Muhammad pretty frequently. But yeah, I mean, uh yeah. I mean, I'd... it goes all the way back, bro. Like, I'm not gonna go into detail, but you had Billy Papke, who had a whole other, you know, crazy. Yeah, that's a good early, one. Early uh early century middleweight champ, you know, turn of the century middleweight champion, um, had his wars with Ketchum and others of the era. His son turned pro, completely nondescript, never really did much. Marcel Serdan, uh, former That's middleweight one, champion. Yeah. Um, we know the story of him and everything like that. His kid turned pro. His kid was actually had some success, uh, was rated by the Ring magazine at one point, but again, never really rose past that. And um, became, you know, I, you know, he never fought for a championship, let alone, you know, being a, like a really, really ranked contender. But it's, it's always one of those type of things, man. When you can try to go back, you just want to try to like, you know, fall in the footsteps of your dad. There, there are certain guys today. Hasim Rahman Jr. is, um, is a pro. Uh, Fernando Vargas's kid is trying it. Evander Holyfield's kid, like they're all over. So, 
Yeah, I, I had a, a list and I knew that we weren't going to get to him, but I'll just kind of rattle off a handful of them. Alejandro Cobrita Gonzalez Sr. and Alejandro Gonzalez Jr., who unfortunately was murdered in 2016. Uh, yeah. that was but he had a he had that great and surprising fight with Carl Frampton, Frampton. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and again, surprising. There's Jorge Paez and Jorge Paez Jr. That's right. Yep. And also Azrael Paez was also Jorge Paez, uh, his son. Um, I got to Howard see Howard Davis's my... kid. What's that? Howard Davis's kid. That's true. Yeah. Well, and actually, before we were talking about Floyd Patterson, Tracy Harris Patterson. Yes, yes. Forgot absolutely. about him, too. I got to see Maro Merito, Jorge Paez Jr. fight uh, live a handful of times, uh, once in San Diego because he was being handled by uh, Zanfer and Sequan. Mm-hmm. But let's see, what else? Aaron Pryor and Aaron Pryor Jr., but also Stefan Pryor. That's right. Uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. and Jr., oh, and also, of course, Omar Chavez. Uh, the whole Mayweather family, Floyd Mayweather Sr., Jeff Mayweather, Roger Mayweather, and of course, Floyd Mayweather Jr. We talked about the Spinks brothers, McNeely's. Um, let's see. Oh, and also, yeah, I forgot Tom McNeely Sr. too, because Tom McNeely Jr. was the one who fought Floyd Patterson. There was a Tom McNeely Sr. who was a heavyweight in the 1930s, but he was like, what's it? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and also another one, the first father-son duo to get knocked out by the same guy, Harold Johnson um, yep. Sr. and Jr. got yeah. knocked out by Jersey Joe Walcott. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's That one I did know. Yeah. That, and that might have been what I was connecting then. But uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Um, one that I kind of wished uh, that I, I would have thought of earlier, Tony Mundine and Anthony Mundine would have been That's fun right. to talk about. That's a really, really good one. Good call. Yeah, Tony Mundine challenged uh, Carlos Monzon in the 1970s. Anthony was just a long-time middleweight contender that had a long yeah, career. A very good fighter and a guy respected in Australian boxing. Mm-hmm. Anthony Mundine, on the other hand, got knocked out brutally by Sven Otke. <laughs> he did do other things, like piss everyone off constantly. I'm sorry, man, but you got, like, Magic at one punch by fucking four knockouts feather fist hockey and you're winning the fight yeah i and i remember that at the time because everyone was like oh he's super athletic he's like a rugby player and all sorts of shit and i was like well, how well could he possibly do and he did do well and then all of a sudden it was just like the lightest punch on the face of the planet totally knocked him cold senseless dead to the world it's a mystery that's uh that's Kaz- that's the career of hockey uh who was a who was a very prominent japanese promoter yeah. Uh, Hiroki Ioka, his son, champion. Kazuto Ioka, also yeah. his son, champion. Guti Espadas and Guti Espadas Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both became, both were champions. Yep. Hector Camacho, uh, and Felix Camacho and Hector Camacho Jr. Uh, Faklan Sakriren and Tirfong Utalda, aka Faklan Sakriren Jr., both world champions. Nigel Ben and Connor Ben, Chris Eubank and Chris, Chris Eubank, Eubank Jr. Jr. Alan Minter and Ross Minter, um, Ronald Hearns and Thomas Hearns. I forgot that one, yep. Julian Jackson, Julius Jackson, and John Jackson. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's all I wrote down, because after well, that, no, I was... That, bro, if you're going to go from, like, big names or everything... You after know, that, I was like, okay, we're scraping the barrel here. I need to stop. But honestly, like, the way we broke it down today, I think we, like, you know, went in depth with the ones that we did. We're good, so... 
Yeah, dude. I, uh, I mean, I think we hit most of the big ones, most yep. of the important ones. I'm, you know, like I said earlier, we're not going to be able to hit all of them, dude. This is, we only got so much time and <laughs> we're not built that way, dude. As you, if you tuned in this entire time, can probably understand we go off on little, you know, tangents and stuff like that, that we remember and fun little tidbits, just because that's how it is, dude. Hey, man, I appreciate it, dude. A lot of fun. Yeah, this is a lot of fun today. Absolutely. And speaking of which, if you did listen in or watch, we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Uh, if you would subscribe on YouTube, that is helpful. Go ahead and leave a comment too. If you want to hear something else from us or have any requests as far as topics, also helpful. But if you listened in via some sort of podcast app, whatever it is, also subscribe, leave us a comment or rating. Helpful in that regard. As far as social media goes, we're all up on there, Facebook and Instagram. But if you are on Twitter, follow my boy, Eris Pina at PunchZoneEris. Follow me at Pat Patrick M. Connor. If I can figure out my own name, we'll see about that. But Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Absolutely, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take it easy, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.